Hey everybody, welcome to Growing the Fishes podcast, uh, episode 257. Um, this week we have Luna Whitcomb of Skunk Magazine. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. We also have uh, Fumador with us. How's it going, Fumi? It's going, guys. Cheers. Um, before we get started, uh, everybody be sure to check out the virtual aquaponic cannabis conference, November 13th and 14th. You can check out the info around me. Um, we'll be uh, live on this same YouTube channel, Potent Ponics. Uh, if you're listening to this in audio format, you can find that live on YouTube uh, from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, we will have 26 hours of content because I'm a glutton for punishment. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, check it out. We have a huge long lineup of, of people that we'll be announcing next week. Uh, so definitely check that out. Uh, we also have APMJclass.com. Uh, if you guys are looking for education, you can check that out there. Um, pull it up beforehand as always um, but you can check us out over there we do have uh, quite an enormous library of content now uh, with new content every week or two on aquaponic cannabis growing from marty and myself uh, with grows builds and farm tours from around the world uh, with different places that we're working on so definitely check that out we have a ton of, of great info on there um, thanks a lot for joining us luna um, you have a ton of awesome content i know i'm definitely a huge fan of all the awesome articles that you're putting out on on both facebook and in, uh, on skunk and um, i've had a chance to meet a lot of the people from skunk over the years hanging out a lot with dennis perone and everybody else down in california so it's super cool to have you on the show um, thanks for joining us and why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself and what you do you have some monster plants and all kinds of cool stuff going on hey thanks um so yeah, I'm an author for Skunk Magazine, a writer, editor, I'm also um, administrating for the new forum that's being developed, uh, which hasn't been released yet, but we're putting it together, putting a lot of work into it and trying to create a new educational platform um, for uh, the world to learn how to grow organic medicine. Pretty exciting. Um, yeah, I like to, um, I'm, you know, I'm really big into living soil. Um, fascinated by microscopy, um, really big into microscopy and, and um, trying to maximize diversity of different microorganisms and microbes, fungi inside of the soil. Um, I have some processes that I've been developing and working on that I release um, kind of in pieces. I wanna make sure that everything is dialed in and doing well before putting all my recipes out there, but we could talk a little bit about that um, some really exciting work that I am um, into with polysaccharides and maximizing biological diversity through using polysaccharides as a food source. That would be great. Yeah, we haven't had anybody talk about polysaccharides at all. Please tell us more. That's really interesting. Oh, really? Sweet. We can talk a whole bunch about this. Um, so I'm a big nerd for compost teas, yeah, um, and just inoculants in general. Um, and, you know, when I first got into compost teas, it's pretty, pretty standard, you know, use molasses, right? Um, and I kind of dove into this, this concept of, um, you know, using molasses and the profile that it provided inside of compost tea. Um, and upon like, you know, learning some more um, 
discovered that the, um, you know, the simple sugars, the glucose source, um, these food sources, you know, what we give our compost teas change the diversity inside of our, our teas, um, the inoculant that we give to our soil. Um, so, you know, people will add fish hydroslate, uh, kelp, molasses. Um, and I was doing some reading um, by Elaine Ingham and she talks a lot about oat flour um, and how oat flour is kind of a superior um, food source for composties to see you scrolling through all my stuff. Um, so uh, I dove into that a little bit further, um, learning how in nature and the decomposition of organic matter in nature, certain bacteria and fungi prefer different food sources. They prefer different uh, carbohydrates, different um, the glucose chains. Uh, so I started playing around with using polysaccharides instead of simple sugars in my compost teas and came up with some really cool stuff to really maximize the diversity um, coming out of the teas. And I'm not sure if everyone's familiar with it, but uh, a lot of terpene profiles, a lot of terpenes require specific uh, microbes and bacteria to be present in the soil and they create terpene profiles in the plant. And so maximizing the terpene profile of your plants comes from maximizing the diversity of microbes inside your soil. So to me, it's just like, when I have to maximize the diversity of biology inside of my compost teas, how am I gonna do that? Um, so I started playing with these polysaccharide sources. Uh, I'm just gonna ramble on a whole bunch. <laughs> um, started playing with these different polysaccharide sources. So there's five main um, categories of polysaccharides, right? Of uh, the complex carbohydrates. Um, I'm jumping all over the place. I'm gonna back up a little bit. So a complex carbohydrate breaks down slower than a, uh, you know, a monosaccharide. Polysaccharide breaks down slower than a monosaccharide. Um, so these complex sugar sources, they break down slower than simple sugar sources. Molasses, sugar, you know, straight glucose, these are all simple sugars. They get consumed really quickly by, by biology and a specific spectrum of biology consumes them really quickly. The numbers explode, they consume it all very fast and then they can die out inside of your soil and inside of your compost tea. Um, they can also overfeed your compost tea throughout the balance of, uh, of the, the, the biology. We'll get into that a little bit later, um, talking about specific microbes inside of compost teas. I'll get back to the polysaccharides. Um, so to, to maximize the diversity, I'm maximizing the polysaccharides. The five different uh, main categories of polysaccharides are, geez, I haven't said this in a while. So we have our starches, our, we, I'm sorry, they come from starches, from, from like grain, carbohydrates, things like that. They come from mushrooms, they come from algae, they come from insects and they come from plants, right? Um, so the plants are like our cellulose, that's our plant-based polysaccharide. Then we have our, our chitin from mushrooms. Um, then we have our, our algae um, produces a specific polysaccharide, the, the name escapes me. Mushrooms, they have chitin also, but they have um, what's called beta-glucans. And so all of these different polysaccharides feed different profiles of biology. And so I introduced all of these different components into compost teas to maximize diversity, to maximize terpene profiles in my plants. There's my very long-winded 
explanation of polysaccharides and what I'm doing with them. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, no, and actually, I would love for you to touch again on just, it's something that we've talked about a lot uh, on Fumi's show and on my show, but just about how uh, you're absolutely right with the certain microbes having to be present to activate certain terpene profiles. Um, because they are immune system responses, right? The, the plant's trying to respond to some type of environmental factor. So it has to uh, have that present. Otherwise, it's not going to waste energy to create that secondary metabolite. Um, uh, I think you hit the nail on the head on that with how you're explaining it. Good. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's super fascinating stuff. Um, I really love it. And um, the science of, of enzymes and how that connects secrete enzymes or enzyme profiles attract certain microbes. Um, so I'm always trying to introduce a wide diversity of microbes also, or I mean of enzymes also through ferments of different kinds, um, different sources of enzymes and things like that. So uh, just kind of having a complete system in place. Um, the enzymes that break down certain polysaccharides need to be present or help you know, the breakdown to co come about faster so it's more available. Um, like, uh, you know, chitinase and uh, cellulase and, and um, you know, beta-glucanase, I think is one too. Um, so having these things present by fermenting the polysaccharide sources before adding them to teas also is something I've been playing with, um, which, I don't have tons of like double, I you know I don't have like double blind studies behind a lot of these things. They're just like things that I'm kind of working on and playing with, um, adding to my teas and then giving to my plants and seeing how they respond. Um, but I encourage people to look into it so there can be more information on it because I don't hear a lot of people talking about it or doing it. Um, so I'd love it if people adopted it and then, you know, we can collectively create new processes that make better medicine for everybody. Um, yeah, that sounds awesome. Uh, I know we're working on a project that we just started talking about this week called uh, Open Nutrient Project uh, that, that's very similarly aligned. I need to, to get in touch with you offline and, and talk to you about that, um, uh, about trying to open source a lot of this aggregated information. And there's a ton of overlap between the compost tea world and the ferment world and the KNF world. And it's it's always silly to, pee, to me when people try to like think that it's one or the other when it's both, right? They're, 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 they're a coin, right? It's, it's, this is compost tea and this side is ferments, right? And you have to have both in order to have a coin. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty common that it seems like in organic farming specifically where people like, they like segregate themselves into these different philosophies of organic growing. Um, and, you know, I have no problem with, you know, being really passionate about a certain subject or a certain field and someone who really wants to be, uh, I guess, purist in, in what it is that they're doing, you know, go right ahead. There's, there's a whole bunch of different ways to, to grow a plant. Um, I'm not going to say anyone's wrong. There's just certain things that I subscribe to and certain things that I don't. Um, there's certain portions of those schools of thoughts that I also subscribe to and parts of those schools of thoughts that I don't. And I'll mix and I'll match them based on what makes sense to me um, to, to create kind of like my own path and my own thing. You know, it, it works out well for me. Um, but 
you know, I, I encourage everyone to just do what makes sense to them um, and to like, listen to themselves. I've, I've found that so many people, they'll screw up their, their gardens, just following what other people say. Uh, and especially there's, there's so many people out there that are really quick to give answers um, to problems that, that are like really impossible to diagnose over imagery and stuff. And, and everyone has their own approach to these problems too, that may or may not work based on whatever you're doing and have been doing. Um, so, and that's just kind of my experience in like the forums talking there, <laughs> but um, yeah. I'm gonna lost my place right now. <laughs> so what, uh, what type of re uh, ferments or teas or, or different things have you, is there any in particular that you've found that it really stand out that maybe are, are less common? I know a lot of times with, with KNF, people are like, oh, if you if you deviate from Master Cho, then it's not KNF anymore. It's like, yeah, it is, come on, relax. It's all the same, it's all the same machine. Um, uh, what are some of the different things that um, uh, maybe you found that are maybe, you know, a little bit more, uh, less traditional that are, are just really awesome? Um, so like using KNF kind of techniques to like kind of deviate from KNF? Is that what well, you mean? We're just using that as an example. It doesn't have to necessarily be KNF, but well, what are some of the different uh, methods? Uh, is there anything or preparations or teas or ferments or anything else that you found is, is kind of like, man, people need to know about this. Like I've talked about in the past, the, the super labs and the phycocyanin isolates is one example. Um, what are some of the other different things that you've found that, that work super awesome? Um, so so with ferments and stuff, a lot of what I do with ferments um, and a lot of of KNF style ferments and stuff like that are based off of collecting enzymes and hormones, right? And so I try to, to specifically go inputs to ferment based on their hormone profiles and their, their you know, the hormones present in them. So one of the things that, that Cho teaches that I think is just an invaluable piece of information um, is that certain hormones are present in certain plants based on the growth stages that they're in. Um, and certain plant inputs have more hormones than others. Um, one hormone that I'm really into um, is jasmonic acid or methyl jasmine, um, which is a stress response hormone um, that's really present in bamboo shoots. And he talks about this in his book, um, Fermenting Fresh Bamboo Shoots, um, and how they cause an explosive vegetative growth. Um, they can, uh, the jasmonic acid, the uh, methyl jasmine also, it brings out terpenes as well. Cause it's, since it's a stress response hormone, it, it's like giving the plant stress without actually giving it stress. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. And um, so plant inputs that are rich in jasmonic acid, my favorite one is premature uh, blackberries and they're abundant here where I am in Oregon. Um, so I go out and I get a big five gallon bucket and I ferment the whole thing. I make my, um, my FPJ out of, out of premature blackberries. Oh, look, there's a little picture right there too where you were just looking at the blackberries. You don't have to go back, it's okay. <laughs> um, but um, I'll use that. If I can find bamboo, I'll use that in veg. I like to use the premature blackberries right when they go into flower. 
and it'll it's like a transition ferment that really helps them shoot pistols and really helps with that that terpene production um, and immediately with the trichrome production. Um, and I've kind of noticed that the the plant will take on like a, a berry scent. Um, yeah, that, 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 that right there. Um, that took so long to make, <laughs> to pick all those little berries and to fill that five gallon bucket took forever. And that was, I think one or two doses on my farm. Um, I, but uh, I highly recommend doing it. The, the response, plant response from playing with these hormones and playing with these ferments is drastic. Um, but I do want to mention that, uh, sorry, I'm a little nervous. I'm talking kind of funny. Um, I do want to mention that when using these ferments, um, it's very important that you use local inputs. Um, you don't want to go to the grocery store and buy things that have been handled by a bunch of people. Since we're playing with biology and multiplying biology, you don't want something that's been handled by a hundred different people or been transported, you know, across the country or hundreds of miles in a dirty truck. And then you're taking it and you're throwing it in sugar and then you're throwing it in water and, and, um, you know, can be definitely not beneficial for your plant. Right. Um, it's best to use local inputs grown in your environment. Um, one, because they're cleaner, but also they have local biology attached to them and that that's been acclimated to the, um, environment and is more likely to survive and thrive and break down that, uh, that input as well. Because since the, the enzymes on the plant matter attract specific microbes specific, or enzyme specific microbes. Um, and so when you introduce them, it activates it faster, right? Um, and also when using these ferments, it's important that you follow the full, uh, category of input that didn't really make sense but um so in Korean natural farming they always talk about using all of the inputs together you never want to use them um alone right you don't want to use fpj by itself you want to use it with a microbial inoculant with the enzyme source and they also talk about using um using it with ohn um i feel like i can get away without using ohn when using um my uh, my FPJs. I just like to add it to my composties as my microbial inoculant. NKNF, they use, you know, what's called uh, IML, uh, indigenous microorganisms as their inoculant, you know, um, you know lactic acid bacteria serum. And, um, you know, that was, that was a little bit earlier in the season. And so I make sure that my, you know, that I have that complete recipe, you know, almost like baking a cake, you got to make sure every kind of needed thing is in there, right? Um, so I make my compost tea as my microbial inoculant. Um, I'll add my enzymes. In KNF, they use brown rice vinegar. I prefer to use sprouted sea teas, um, or if I am, you know, strapped on time, I'll go and pick up some SLF 100. Um, and then I'll add, um, you know, I make my own labs or AEM. And add that to my my compost tea post brew, and I have my FPJ post brew, and that's how I use my um, my ferments. So this is not a KNF process, but I'm using a lot of KNF concepts, right? Um, so that's 
That's one of the things is using using ferments, using FPJs in conjunction with compost teas, um, bamboo, blackberries. I like doing pumpkin, squash, cantaloupe is another great one. Just today I used those three inputs as um, my ripening ferment. Um, using those ripening hormones to uh, to get them all finished up, go into senescence and bulk up in the last bit of weight. We had a, a question from chat. Do wild blackberries do this uh, as well? And another question uh, from chat. Do you have a YouTube channel? I do not have a YouTube channel. Yeah, wild blackberries is what I'm using. Um, I just walked around the property and picked blackberries for hours with a friend. <laughs> very tedious, very tedious task for sure. So what are some of the, um, have you, do you work a lot with lacto? I know you do, you do some stuff with lactobacillus and what are some of the different things that you've found with lactobacillus? Uh, I know that you're using it for all different types of stuff and I've, I've worked quite a bit with that as well. What are some of the different applications that you've found for, for labs? <clears throat> so I ferment soybean meal um, from my chitinase source to add to my compost yeast post-brew um, to help break down our, my chitin or my chitin. Um, so my chitin comes from, you know, the mushroom extracts that I'll add or the, um, you know, the insect frass because it's um, present in the, the care space of, of insects and stuff. So when I add that to my tea, I make sure to add, uh, fermented soybean meal as an enzyme source to break it down. So I, soybean meal is a big one. Um, you know, I was playing with uh, alfalfa meal. And I think I talked to you about that, right? How like, um, there's a lot of the talk about. Yeah, there's a yeah. lot of debate on how long tricantinol is maintained in, um, in any type of brews or ferments because there's a ton of like suspicion about it, but there's almost, if you actually go on like Dr. Duke's database or some of the others out there, there's next to no actual hard data on tricantinol uh, and how much of it survives harvest of uh, the alfalfa or some of the other inputs that can have uh, tricantinol. And then how, you know, is that present after compost tea brewing and is that present after fermentation? I know there's, I've, I've read some pretty interesting things that the tricantinol is very unstable and can be broken down pretty quickly, particularly in fermented um, uh, situations. But, it, it, you know, people, there is no hard data on that that I'm aware of. If someone can link some in chat, please do. But as far as I'm aware, there isn't a ton of, of actual, you know, verified data on that. Maybe you know something I don't. No, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, you know, my original intention was to, to extract the tricontinol. But I remember, you know, I was talking to a good handful of people and they kind of pointed me to other talks on hormones and, um, you know, phytohormones and people talking about it. I heard someone say that, you know, the best way to just get it into your plan is by top dressing fresh alfalfa and just letting it break down. I was it you that said that once it's like the, once the alfalfa is dried, it's like not viable. Yeah, was that you? yeah that was, uh, and that was from, I believe it was Clack, Clackamas Coot or, or somebody else that had had some, done some testing with it. I don't remember if it was Coot or somebody else, but so someone else that was really into soil stuff told me that it, once it's chopped down, that it loses most of the viability of tricantinol through desiccation. Um, 
again, I, I don't know if anyone's proven that out beyond that. I, I haven't seen any data uh, for that, but I've, I've heard that from three or four people that I trust on other topics. Yeah, that's interesting. I know so many people up here in Oregon who get those little alfalfa pellets and they just cover their, their pots with them. And I'm not particularly a big fan of that, that idea. Um, but my soil has alfalfa meal in it, you know? And uh, it's hard to ever like really know like which inputs are really doing the best things over others without, you know, like tons and tons of side-by-side -side research. And it seems like that information is pretty much hoarded and not really one to, to kind of collaborate on. Yeah, it's definitely something that, again, this is the type of stuff that we need to kind of work together. I think that we can get rid of a, a lot of the things that drive a lot of us nuts that people often debate, like the, you know, some of the religion of organic topics and some of the other stuff that people have just been doing for so long and, and don't understand why. A lot of it, there's a chemistry reason why, and we learn from it and then can extrapolate or improve upon it or better refine it. And a lot of it is just grow science. And it's nice to you know finally have the the resources i think especially with um the the plague and everything that's happened in the world the last year or two it's really cut down the cost of of on-site testing for a lot of identifying a lot of the path uh, the microbes and and de doing dna sampling and a lot of this other testing equipment is, is really come down in price and we're going to have access to a lot more tools in the immediate future to to better analyze and better break down a lot of this stuff You know, you see that a lot with um, a lot of the uh, nutrient testing equipment has really got come down in price uh, in the last year or two as well in terms of, of on-site testing. So you're seeing that, uh, you know, already even before uh, some of the newer DNA stuff is coming out. So really excited about that and, and how much um, people are kind of finally working together. I think this year with the prices of, of stuff being a little bit cheaper, it really kind of has a lot of people are working together in a way that they kind of weren't before. And, and that's been, you know, at this... Uh, a silver lining uh, in a on a dark cloud. Yeah, competition is fierce. Market saturated. <laughs> so tell us about your um, your plants. You have some monsters that we were showing a little bit earlier. Thanks. Yeah. What do you want to know? What what strains are you growing, and um, what? Uh, uh, oh, here's Coot. He might be able to explain it to us with the chicantinol. Uh, actually, let me ask him real quick since he, well, we'll ask him once he's connected, but um, uh, what, um, what strains are you growing out there? Um, so I got some, I got a whole bunch of things that I made that I've been playing with. Um, I took a blue kryptonite and I crossed it with new cheese and then I back crossed that a couple of times. And then I used, I call that moon cheese. And then I used that, I crossed it with, you know, just um, uh, one's animal cookies, one's for like look for, and one's diamond OG. Uh, the diamond isn't super hyped, but, um, and so I have probably like half of my garden is that. And then I got some stuff from a friend. Um, jeez, oh, what's the name of this company? Oh, no. <laughs> um, Till Whitby, and then the other one is Panameras, him and his partner. Um, they did some, some Fuberry crossed with Fire OG and uh, crossed with uh, Blue Magoo. I got some of those two going on. Um, and then I, uh, the one, which I think is bred by Clackamas Coop, isn't it? 
Uh, which one? The one? The one? Yep. That's Coots. So I think he got it from Coot too. Um, I believe that's what he told me. Um, so it's a Fuberry cross with the one, and I'm growing that one too. So I'm actually growing some some uh, lineage from from him. Uh, what else do I got out there? I got a, a row of um, uh, plants from from Omawarta genetics. There we go. Like, uh, Sorry about that. Uh, happens sometimes when people connect. Um, I didn't mean to interrupt you. That's okay. Um, so yeah, I'm just growing some of that stuff. Um, I put everything out really early. Um, I got my plants in like May 4th, um, which I think was probably a mistake, honestly. I think probably like later May would have been a better idea. I was growing in 400 gallon pots, where I am growing in 400 gallon pots. And I just maxed them out, like completely maxed out those 400 gallon pots. Um, and my plants are massive, you know, like, um, some of them range, you know, I have one that's, that's 12 by like 16 feet wide. Um, you know, between, you know, most of them are 10 feet tall. I don't think there is any under 10 feet tall. And then they're between like 10, 12 and like 15 feet wide. Like they're really, really wide. Um, and I try to do that on purpose. Um, I like when I was vegging them, I you know, made sure to spread them out. They were never, their leaves were never touching. Um, as they were vegetating, I also gave them um, oh, some coconut you. water, which um, oh. yeah. um, cytokine, um, you know, stunts apical dominance, um, or uh, yeah, and um, so I was giving them coconut water kind of early on to kind of get them to like push out, um, and I think that's one of the main reasons why my plants were so super wide, because um, everyone in the area. All their plants got really tall. They didn't get near as wide as mine. And everyone's like, what did you do so different to make your plants so wide? Um, and I think that that was really it. I think that that could have been it. It was really staying on top of not letting the leaves touch each other when they were younger um, and giving them that coconut water when they were young. I think that was a big part yeah. of it. Coconut water is awesome. I know when I was in Jamaica, a lot of the times they'll take that and add that as up to a quarter of some of the ferments that they'll do. They'll do like a 55 gallon drum and do it up to a quarter full of coconut water, throw all their fruit skins in there, like their sweet sop, sour sop, mango skins, like whatever, throw all that in there and then put it another um, quarter ish of it uh, to third of it as milk and then top off the rest of it with water and mix it all up and then put a, a lid on it and then they'll seal that up for three or four weeks and then take that out and they use that as a finisher or transition um, uh, transition and fit in flowering basically input um, and it works freaking awesome but it's kind of a different version of it uh, uh, than what a lot of people have been taught but I, I've personally seen that at three separate farms in, in Jamaica some variant of that. That's pretty awesome what is that called? I don't think they have a name for it. They just call it, I don't know, it was just a ferment that they used. They didn't have a, a specific name for it, but I've seen that uh, up in um, Westmoreland on the south side of the island down by White House-ish. That's super uh, awesome. So it's coconut water, milk, water, fruit? 
And fruit skins, yep. Fruit skins? Do you know the ratios for that? I have no idea. I'd have to go back okay. and I'd have to go down there and ask them, but that might be happening here soon. I got to go down to, to Puerto Rico. I might be able to use that as an excuse to, to jag islands on the way home. That's awesome. Um, Coop, did, uh, are you uh, are you with us now? Uh, we got a question about tricantinol that I think you know the answer to. Looks like he's still getting his stuff sorted. We'll uh, we'll ask him here when uh, when he gets his audio figured out. Um, cool. <laughs> um, what what other uh, inputs have you used uh, uh, as far as your your plants there to get them that big? I mean, you had, those plants look amazing. We'll we'll throw them back up here on the screen. Thanks so much. Um, so the soil mix is uh, well. First of all, it has a massive diversity of different inputs in it. Um, I'm a big fan of, of diversity of, of inputs, diversity of, of microorganisms. I asked my most recent one from today. That's from the, you know, from an orchard ladder. Oh, that's my friend that died. <laughs> from my Facebook, huh? Um, trying to find the most recent pictures you had up. <laughs> it, might be, it might be better to go to my Instagram. Sure. Yeah. Um, what's, uh, why don't you tell everybody what your Instagram is while I'm pulling it up? So it's Luna all day. There's only one A. So it's L-U-N-A-L-L-D-A-Y. Um, the other one is someone different. <laughs> um, it's pretty funny. But um, if you ever stumble upon it, it's pretty funny. But uh, yeah, so that's my Instagram. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. That's my monster right there. So that... Uh, that bamboo up on the top, that's 13 feet from the, the top of the smart pot. Um, and then the two eight foot sticks that have been attached to each other because we couldn't find 10 foot bamboo. So the sticks are actually 12 feet wide. Um, and you can see that it's going past that. That one's like 15, at least 15 feet wide. Monster. And um, that's the largest plant on my farm. I do apologize for the uh, occasional skipping. Um, yeah, I'm definitely growing more of that. And then the three plants behind it are also the same genetic and they're close to as big. I got, yeah, those are a little bit, I think those are a couple weeks old, but um, I have excellent trichome density, um, terpene profile, it's through the roof. I have a lot of different like fruity kind of scents, like really cheesy things coming through. Um, those two top ones are the most recent pictures. I just took those a couple, I think yesterday. I think I posted that top one yesterday. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, that's one of the just regular moon cheeses. That thing is also a monster. Yeah, that's like 12 by 12. Um, and yeah, you can see that the, you know, some of the weed is just straight white, you know? It's got like some purple undertones underneath it, some purples and pinks, and the weed is just white. Um, and I, um, I attribute a lot of that to the soil mix. I actually picked up my soil from a company called SensiSci, um, and I, uh, I selected them based on knowing that they use principles um, 
or you know they subscribe to they adopt principles um and research from the book the ideal soil are you familiar with it i haven't heard of that one no it's it's about proper mineral balancing um and like really making sure that your your nutrients are balanced in the right ratios so that they don't wash things out and they you know are uptaken when they need to be uptaken and stuff um so i think a it's also a, a, it's a mixed cocoa core and peat, um, peat moss based soil. So it holds a lot of water. Um, I, you know, I usually keep my plants bars in 120 millibars, but I found with this soil that you can take it even lower. And I was running it at like 50 millibars, um, which is like super saturated, right? And the plants were just stoked. They just ate it up super high frigidity, like the entire time, um, you know, until it got into flowering, you know, how flowers things that they start to take a bunch of energy from the rest of the plant. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm really pumped on the, on the city size soil. Um, and then I implemented all my soil food web techniques with them, um, you know, making sure that the, the complete soil food web is, is there inside of the soil. So identifying, you know, your your bacteria and your protozoa, your different types of protozoa, you know, your nematodes, you know, make sure there's microanthropods and, and um, yeah, the appropriate numbers of protozoa and diversity of protozoa as well, um, which, which are all great. You know, when I, um, when I, I, you know, I use my microscope when I scope my, my compost bee with the recipe that I'm using for the first time, I posted it in um, one of the, uh, soil food web microscopy groups and you know everyone commenting on my on my video was like how did you get this you know bacterial diversity because um, a lot of them kind of follow the uh, they subscribe to the ideology of using oat flour and I was using oat flour along with other things as well um, and they were like what what did you do to get this and I was kind of like oh I'll tell you later you know when I can use it <laughs> but um I did mention, you know, I don't like to give specific inputs of what I use because I want people to, to look it up and do it themselves and come up with different ways to do it. But the, it's about using those five different main categories of polysaccharides. So do your research, figure it out yourself. <laughs> Let me know what you figure out, you know, um, and uh, let's work on it together, right? But uh, I, have, I am reluctant to just give out specifically everything that I'm, that I'm doing. Welcome. Um, we had a, a question for you uh, on tricantinol and whether or not it's still present after harvest of, of alfalfa. I figure you might know the answer to that one. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. And as a matter, one other thing about that particular auction, uh, I'm not sure if it, I believe it's an auction, it might be a hormone. All auctions are hormones, but not all hormones are auctions. So um, I don't want to. But anyway, um, that's the only plant on uh, this planet that produces that particular compound, as in the same way, the only plant on this planet that produces um, uh, oh, the one that's in kelp. Um, Oh, alginic acid. That's the only, and not even the, there's three forms of marine algae. There's red, green, and brown. And it's not even, it, just in the area of brown, there's 1,800 varieties around the world. But only brown 
marine algae produces alginic acid. You don't find it in green algae and you don't find it in red, also known as Irish moss. You might've seen that among you vegans, use it as a thickening agent uh, for different applications. So that's where it comes from, is from that uh, uh, red seaweed, if you will, for lack of a better. Kelp and seaweed are interchangeable for this uh, limit, not amongst uh, marine biologists, but uh, ask a few of them, I sent him some papers on an uncle of mine, and uh, he's been published for the last 50 years and uh, uh, is a professor emeritus at uh, the big University of Miami in uh, marine biology. So I always get humorous when people try to dictate to me about marine algae and uh, other uh, ocean-based uh, materials. So I'll leave it at that. But anyway. So um, yeah, if you go to- From what you I were looking, beeswax has a lot of triconchinol in it also, doesn't it? Well, yeah, from gathering it from the uh, beeswax, yes, from gathering it from the alfalfa, but they don't produce it. It's a, a plant compound. So, it's, it so if you look at it, if it didn't, if they didn't uh, collect it from the alfalfa, it wouldn't be present otherwise. Correct. Huh? I did not know correct. that. Yeah. Um, it's uh, which makes it old timers, and it's kind of weird for me to use that term, but. Um, one of the nicknames for alfalfa was field kelp because it is, a, there's a lot of uh, what are called bionutrient accumulators. And the two at the top of the list are kelp and alfalfa because of uh, the diversity, they're uh, accumulating all 83 elements that plants need and in the right balance. So not what a, a, a fertilizer salesman tells you you need, you're getting it the right amount of boron, uh, molybdenum, magnesium, uh, manganese, you know, go down all 83. What the cannabis trade got started with 40 years ago was uh, what's called the law of minimums. So they come up with this group of 16 elements uh, and that's just absurd. But uh, when, you, when you take in the macro and micronutrients, you come up with 83. So that's, uh, that's why kelp is so, uh, it can be a real, like a mainstay or center uh, component of a, uh, of a soil mix, you know, as far as uh, an amendment that's gonna provide you with a wide range of uh, nutrients. But, a lot of uh, selenium and valinium and a lot of those other trace elements that you- Correct. Have. I'm finding in a way that's not from a mining byproduct. You know what I mean? That it, it really is correct. You can get in a clean way. Just don't go crazy. We've talked about correct. if you overdose with kelp, sure. uh, causing arsenic issues. But a small amount of kelp or kelp, when used as directed, is is great. Um, the one other thing I was well, I don't have a calculator. I, I don't have a calculator in front of me, but somebody who does, if you'll take the numeral one and divide that by one twenty that will give you the percentage of what I recommend to use. So I recommend one cup of kelp meal, not seaweed extract, which is a, uh, is a uh, manufactured product. Uh, one cup in 120 cups of, basically a cubic foot is 120 cups. So that's where I'm getting numbers from, 120 cups and I'm using one cup. So if you divide one by 120, 
I mean, you're going to come up with like what 0.7% or something. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty minimal. Point and oh, the oh, other oh, one. <laughs> what's that? 0. 0.0008, I think it was. Yeah, so that should yeah, send shockwaves through, uh, you know, the kids. Yeah. But it's you, got selenium or, you know, whatever the, whatever the uh, element we don't want to do this week is, you know, it usually changes. So, uh, but anyway, for. The look is so hot right now. I was going to say selenium caused the whole extinction at one point in the planet. So. Right. Um, I was going to ask uh, Kud about um, uh, barley for, for chitinase. Uh, Luna was talking about uh, chitinase from a couple of other sources, from soybeans and from some other things. Uh, what is some of the sure. stuff uh, that you were, uh, you, you talk about barley. I don't think you've talked about it on my show, though, about chitinase from barley. Okay, so let's, uh, when, let me get my uh, notes open. Is this one I, I don't have on memory, apologize. Most of it do. Okay, so when the uh, seed is uh, malted or sprouted, that's all malting means is that it's sprouted. And so what happens when a seed is uh, germinates, it is, was encoded by the host plant with any number about uh, 150 different enzymes of which the big ones are, and only barley has this, every plant has amylase, but, uh, and especially in the uh, grass seeds, your wheat, rye, and that kind of thing. All of them have amylase, but it's in the form of alpha, the alpha amylase. Only barley contains beta amylase. So that's an important distinction. Some of the other then are cellulase. So meaning that's the one that deconstructs uh, cellulose or you know your uh, saccharides. You have chitinase, uh, phosphatase. That should get every cannabis uh, grower up and running down the hall. You know phosphorus. Um, you have protease, which is your protein, and then you have urease, which is your urea. And then some of these I'm not going to try to pronounce, so bear with me. A beta glucosidase, so oh, for yeah. glucosides, okay. And also an aerial sulfatase. And but those are just the big ones. I mean, there's 150 enzymes that we get for this uh, 80 cent uh, a pound product. That's the two row uh, barley. Got to be two row, doesn't it? Well, it doesn't have to be, but here's the deal. Okay, six row is actually, a, it's like a sativa and indica. Okay, so the whole world uses two row. So do we in this country, but, and only North America, and even then I'm thinking it's only the United States, uses six row. The advantage to six row is that it's higher in amylase. But for our purposes, that isn't a very important enzyme. I'm not saying it's not important, but if you said to me, well, this one has five times the level of chitinase, I'd go, well, yeah, do it. Here's the problem with the uh, six row is that it's more expensive. And especially if you're going to try to get organic, uh, you're in la la land as far as the price per pound. Whereas organic two row from Great Western Malt, they're the largest in the United States. They have about six facilities that crank out uh, uh, malted uh, number two row. Um, you know, you're talking 40 $45 a bag 
for a 50 pound bag. So, uh, yeah, it's a real, uh, for what you get. I mean, if you went to and found a, tried to find a bottle of swill, you know, some magical mix from Weeby Groovy, uh, chemical company it to get all that out of a, a liquid it would cost you the hundreds of dollars and here we can get it for less than a dollar a pound mill it put it in our soil mixer especially our worm bins and get all that enzyme activity going in before we even mix the soil so we have our worm bins becoming more biologically alive so that when you use it to mix our soils if for those of us who do that see how much farther ahead of the game we are because it's it's preloaded with all kinds of cofactors and and not just and also the bioavailability one thing that never gets discussed is it's fine to have iron we'll say or take grab an element i don't care it's fine to have that in the soil but whether it's bioavailable to the plants a whole other issue so, I mean, you could put a nail in, in the soil and say, well, I got iron in my soil or whatever it, and they're made out of. But that wouldn't mean that the plant could do much with it. That used know, to be kind of, of an old uh, wives' tale, right? You were supposed to put like an iron stake or something in your potted plant. Sure. I remember reading that sure. it basically does yeah. nothing. It just rusts. Exactly. Yeah, it's right up there with uh, vitamin B1. So for those who started in this really early, we were uh, taught to use B1 in our cloning or we wouldn't get the magical roots that came from mr jorge cervantes essay about the loco um anyway so now we know after years of research that v1 is is you know just use uh, water or uh kool-aid there you go there you go drink the kool-aid you know mix it up there's a whole bunch of others. Yeah, I used it for years. I thought, oh yeah, this B one's really kicking ass. That and Super Thrive. Jesus Christ, I'm really dating myself. <laughs> um, what uh, uh, is there any questions you'd like to ask Coot, Luna? Uh, uh, I know that you know a, a just absolute ton of stuff about soil science. Um, questions for Coot. Not really, but I did want to tell you that um, I'm growing a, a genetic that's been crossed with the one. Um, so I have some, of the, which I believe you bred, right? Oh, cool. Uh, <coughs> what was it crossed with? <laughs> um, so my buddy Todd gave it to me. Um, he crossed it with Fooberry. Oh, wow. Really? Well, wow. okay. You know, who I, you know, I've given that. I've given away hundreds over the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of that cut. So um, I wish everybody well. There's a lot of people that have used it. And I, you know, hope, uh, there's a couple that uh, I hope I, my wishes aren't as good. Um, you know, charging people $500 for a cut, a rooted cut, you know, when I gave it to them for nothing. And uh, there's about, I think, 12 seed companies out there that. No, no, we got the real deal. Uh, no, you don't. But anyway, uh, you know how that game is played. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, of, the flower looks fantastic. Yeah. What's that? I said the flower looks fantastic. Oh, you'll like it. Yeah, it's real uh, old school uh, tie. You know, all those uh, rotting mango and sandalwood and rosewood and incense kind of things, you know. It's not for... Uh, 
Well, it's just different what's sold today that passes for cannabis, you know, at, at least the dispensaries in Oregon. I was thinking of, uh, I need another, okay, I, I had this idea, but I need another name to add on to cannabis or Coots Cannabis. And what I wanted to do is like travel around Oregon or Portland and buy, uh, you know, little tiny amounts of weed and then write up reviews on it. Uh, so Coots Cannabis Critique, how's that? That okay, would be a- fun. That would be fun. <laughs> Yeah. That would be fun, wouldn't it? Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, your crappy cooties or something. Yeah. 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 Still trying to. I I still want to find the guy, the son of a bitch. That this is going back what several years. The first time I ever saw uh, cookies over at IC Mag, I thought it was an article from the Onion. I thought it was a joke, and said so and. was roundly, uh, oh, you don't know what you're talking. Yeah, I did. I, it, you know, I'm, to I'm go growing a little that. bit of uh, Coot. I'm growing a little bit of the forum cut. One of these days, we'll smoke a spliff. Uh, believe it or not, it is a little bit tasty. Like, like smoke. I'm, not, before, argu- smoke I'm not arguing that. I but to go through all that to get that amount of, of weed. Mm-hmm. I mean, really? There. Jesus. I mean, you know. like that? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. What about uh Peskin? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Are you you're in Oregon too? Yeah, Portland. Or Oregon um, City. Yeah. Okay, so. cool. Right on. I'm in Southern Oregon. Oh, cool. Yeah, I broke that. Too much uh, yeah, too much uh, what do you call it? Fire down there for me and heat. Yeah. It's been pretty rough. You guys have really been through uh excuse me, you folks have really been through some really hard years for the last five years down there. Last year was was pretty ugly. This year wasn't as bad. Good. Yeah, yeah I hope everybody's uh, doing well down there. So I've had, had some uh, friends from pre-legal days, you know, the old, uh, what do they call it now? They don't call it black market now. They call it, oh, traditional growers. I love that term. Traditional growers. Everybody's got to have a term or a, a dressing they can hang on. So they're now traditional growers. Okay. Yeah, we were really traditional. That was back in during the Carter administration. So do your arithmetic there. So for free people's market and uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that? that was another one. I, I just thought of it and I can't remember it. We actually grew some seeds from that era. Actually, have some germinating right now. Some uh, actually, uh, uh, Fumi just gave some away too. Uh, uh, the uh, cherry bomb crossed with uh, uh, late seventies Maui Waui. Yeah, from from Mr. Green Jeans. Yeah, folks are super excited. Oh, wow. I'm excited too. I have a plant. From There's Green a metallic Jeans cherry fino in there. Ten feet from me right now. So, <laughs> yeah. Super There's uh, There's one that uh, we're doing this year. Um, in conjunction with a friend, he and I together have over a hundred years of growing uh, under our belts, and uh, he's got this old line that he's kept. Not the, not the same strain, but the same seed group. How's that? Since '75, when he first uh, started, when he was growing on Maui, and probably came from uh, Southeast Asia because a lot of GIs used to take their R and R in Hawaii to meet up with their wives and girlfriends, and you know they brought their weed and stuff. So um, 
because I mean, it was anyway, it doesn't matter. And so he calls it Pacalolo. Like, so what? So anyway, uh, we crossed it with T.O. And we've got uh, most of our stuff is outdoors because we prefer outdoors. But we have the seed ones indoors for obvious reasons, just to get the seeds from it, not to go into seed business. But I think it'd be a kick-ass cross uh, with this really hardcore. Well, the seed group's been intact. I mean, I'm, I mean, I don't know my terms because I don't claim to be a breeder, but uh, you know what I'm talking about. So he's re, he was rejuvenated the seed lot every couple of years kind of thing. How's that right? Okay. So anyway, that's what we got coming on. I think that's got a really lot of potential. I think it's probably more outdoors. Because even the TO, I mean, you're talking a land race uh, tie from 74. Six, and you're talking a Kandahar Indica from '70, uh, brought in by the importers out of Laguna Beach. So it's never been what's the word climatized indoor. I mean, this plant has, but not the genetics. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Though it's been growing it, I, like I told you before, I did try to grow it outdoors every two or three years up until like you know end of june just to get it back out in the sun and you know kind of get things all the pistons firing and all that stuff so and to that extent i've i've kept maybe that's why i didn't have that horrid malady known as genetic drift uh so uh anyway we had a i did want to highlight one other thing real quick before we get too uh too off topic here um uh, Luna also founded a super awesome Facebook group that's uh, uh, kind of an all-inclusive regenerative um, farming group that's also now part of the Skunk Magazine, but they have a ton of awesome content on here. She has a, a fuck ton of really amazing um, uh, posts, especially early on in the group uh, where she does you know really cool breakdowns about plant hormones and auxins and all different other types of interesting things. So be sure to check that out um, if you're looking for another great resource to learn. Uh, from Luna and, and a lot of different great stuff that she's putting out regularly uh, in terms of content. Definitely check that out. Yes, yeah, so that's called Regeneration Earth by Skunk Magazine is the name of the, the group. And it, it's kind of like our, almost like our beta testing um, of the concept for it's um, released on Skunk Magazine's website and where, like the forums are launched and will kind of be like the, the Facebook equivalent of the, the Skunk Forum. Um, do you have any interest in, uh, you know, not a, not a focus, but some discussion on uh, using mycelium for soil remediation for uh, moving oh, yeah. toxin? Okay. Oh yeah, definitely. I'm all about I'm all about mycelium and fungal bodies and making okay. sure that the hype networks are intact. Yeah. And healthy all right. And stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Why well, was that? Is there something specifically? I mean, I know about like, oh. voice we're getting. Um, uh, hydrocarbons and stuff like that yeah uh using kind of follow a trad cotter from mushroom mountain in south uh, carolina he's uh he has a mushroom company not unlike uh, uh myriad mycology down near you in ashland who have a wonderful line of powders uh organic uh produced here in the states not imported from asia but, you know, Rishi, uh, 
cordyceps, uh, turkey tail, uh, agaricon, uh, you know, all of them. And they have, they have mixes, like they have one that has 10 different mixes, 10 different powders, and they're all 55 a pound. So at two grams a day, that gives you basically 112 doses. Uh, so that's a, it's a, that's a pretty inexpensive supplement, uh, 55 bucks for three months worth of. And so is this like a, is this like something that you, you take for yourself or something that you're oh, absolutely, Yeah. And then I'm growing my own. I do. In fact, I'm in the process of setting up a fruiting tent for lion's mane, especially because I uh, use that in conjunction with, uh, for microdosing. I follow, uh, Paul Stamets has a protocol where you take two grams of lion's mane powder and 0.2 grams of psilocybin uh, five days a week. Some niacin in there too, hundred milligrams or something. But anyway, you get the idea. Well, he, he calls it stacking. That's his term, <laughs> not mine. And so, um, and the other advantage to the uh, lion's mane is that one, it's easy to grow, easier than a lot. You know, they're up there about as easy as oysters. I mean, nothing's easier than oysters. Let's get honest here, but they're not that far behind. And also they make a wonderful dinner because when you uh, cut them into uh, steaks and then uh, broil them with butter and herbs, it has a very crab or lobster-like flavors. It's often used in vegan restaurants for uh, as a protein uh, replacement. Yeah, you have fun with it. And then you take, after you get your fruit and you harvest all that, that block, the fruiting block, as it's called, is all mycelium. And we can take those blocks and bust them up and spread it on our compost piles and get a whole lot done a whole lot faster to get it ready for the worm bins. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not, don't get me wrong. I'm not arguing that we don't need and want thermophilic compost. We do. All I'm saying is that somewhere along the lines before we convert it over to vermicompost, I think there's a place for mycelium to deconstruct some of the wood chips, the straw and other things that might, might be problematic in a soil mix. And if we do that with something like, which is an agricultural waste, like fruiting blocks, because the mushroom companies have to get rid of these things. So here you're providing a service for an, a fellow small business and we can really do some out in your uh say you're growing outdoors or a lot no i wouldn't say a lot but some of the people that i work with down south they grow in 800 gallon pots basically cool um so you, you were talking about these um spent mushroom blocks i was actually looking for a whole bunch of these i was trying to find some um spent spent mushroom blocks you know myceliated uh straw um to use as a mulch um i was going to dry it you know, make sure that it sure, yeah. mulch with that as a, as a fungal. Yeah. Well, here's one of the, here's a book that I, you definitely want to get. And cause uh, he's the only person that's ever written a book about mushrooms that has the word organic in the title. But anyway, it's called uh, organic mushroom farming and uh, soil mycoremediation by Trad Cotter. That's two D's and. That's and a Trad. Funny. This one, just back here. That's the one. Yeah. So yeah, his uh, his procedures, uh, like for example, inoculating uh, burlap, then allowing that to dry, then being able to ship that as a product, 
And when it gets to destination, like say your farm, then you take these uh, sheets of inoculated burlap, lay them out in the field, hydrate them, and let that mycelium then grow down into the soil and do its number for you. So that's that wicked. What are the, what oh, is the inoculated is it oyster mushrooms? Uh, Yes, in fact, I don't know if you know about this one, they're doing this on the Mississippi uh, tributaries as well. So you have a lot of uh, pollutants in the water from any number of reasons uh, on, on the great waterways. So they take a net type material and they load it up with wood chips. And uh, so you have a log, that's what I'm trying to get at. You have a log of uh, wood chips. And so you hydrate that and then you, uh, inoculate it with uh, oysters and once the mycelium gets going and then you float them in the water and they deconstruct the contaminants and uh, re reduce them back to their basic elements, which is, you know, is mostly carbon, hydrogen and oxygen, just not in, anyway, you know, you know the drill. So anyway, that's the ways we can do it too is, is cleaning our water. Say you had a farm and this year with people having to go deep and deeper and deeper to get water, I'm sure there's some contaminant potential maybe. So there would be a way to use mycelium as a way to uh, purify the water without expensive and problematic uh, water cleaning equipment. You know, just throwing some ideas out there. So. Yeah, definitely. Microremediation is, I think, a, a huge part of our future. It needs to be oh, absolutely. It has to be. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if you study the history of the world, so to speak, it was fungi that hooked up with algae that formed plants. I mean, they were here long before there were plants which preceded animals and we're at the bottom of the animal list. We we're like one of the last invitees to the, to the party, right? Uh, so... And long after we do whatever it is we're going to do to each other, you know, blow this this uh, thing up, there'll be fungi. You know, I mean, always fungi. Forever. I mean, think about it. Every time you walk through a forest, every footstep you land, there's 200 miles of mycelium under your foot. One foot. I mean, that's pretty dramatic. Yeah, I love I love mycelium and the you know the communication that it has. And you know, those old growths are so amazing. It's just like this this network of, of almost like a brain. It's like a big consciousness. I kind of think of it as like a massive consciousness, like an old growth forest. Well, in, in, in a definite way, if you study lichen, okay, lichen is a uh, uh, organism that's made up of uh, fungi and bacteria with fungi, what's that joke? Uh, never mind. That's, a, that's not a good joke. Um, anyway, they, they run the whole thing. They're like, they use the bacteria as uh, indentured servants. And uh, lichen was at the very core of our soil. That's what peeled the rocks off. You know, soil that's very basic is rotted animal and plant material with some shattered rock. So the question goes, where'd the shattered rock come from? Lichen. You know, and after billions of years, there was, you know, anyway, that's why I, I, I believe I love that strongly. story. It just, it always puts an exclamation mark on the concept of, you know, time, you know, like uh, geological yeah. time. Like you actually have to think of like 
a big rock and having lichen grow like one inch per year or whatever, one inch per hundred years, I think it is. That's how slow yeah. it freaking grows. Imagine how many hundreds of years it takes to cover the rock and then slowly, slowly, slowly over centuries, 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 dissolve one in individual rock on the entire landscape. And you, you talk about like everything has been dissolved also by water too, but lichen and water creating rock dust so that soil could form. It just it blows my mind every time you mention it. There's a... a I, sadly, because it's probably one of the more difficult in the uh, soil biology world, there's such a lack of understanding on the role that uh, fungi plays, and it's a lot more than passing phosphorus around. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's a cute story, and I, and, I, and I always enjoy a good cannabis story, but that's one of my favorites. Um, and then the level of misunderstanding with regards to mycorrhizal and that whole thing. Uh, you know, you got to really know your sources in this deal. Uh, there's, there's a lot of charlatans, leave it at that. Yeah. Do you want to touch on that with the mycorrhizal species and how it's mainly just one species that that's, there are other species that will colonize cannabis roots. I do want to preface it with that, but there's predominantly just the one species that actually is. is you know, yeah. And what, and what's really unique about that one is, Guess who the biggest producer is? And this isn't a criticism. This is a good thing. So don't, you know, don't shoot the messenger here. But it's the uh, premier horticulture up in uh, Montreal, which is the parent company of uh, ProMix. And you'll notice that on ProMix, they uh, advertise or uh, display prominently that they've already uh, included the mycorrhizal in the, the, the soil mixes. And that's a good thing. Okay. Because that company, Premier Horticulture, has had years and years experience with the uh, hemp industry up in uh, Canada. So they've had field tests. They've had, you know, they, they got this down. And so when you go around the country, this country, and start looking at products, this is one of those where you buy it in bulk, you put your name on it, give it a cute name, and, uh, you know, you, there you go. Um, there's just a lot of rebadging on this stuff, but here's the one that the one that uh, Steve's talking about that variety, that one specific strain, uh, is almost always in all the mixes purchased from Premier, which is a good thing because they know what they're doing. They grow it on Bahia. I'm going to mispronounce it. B a h a i. How do you pronounce that? Bahia or Bahia grass? I think it's yeah, and that's how it's produced. Will will that hyphal network or, or will you know that inoculant that fungal inoculant survive through thermal composting? You know, like like a cooking of soil. Oh yeah, because we're only talking 140 degrees. I mean, even if somebody goes goofy, let's say they go up to 148. Which can I explain that that what was crazy about that idea? Okay, so the only thing that going taking the heat up does. The only thing is it kills pathogens because if composting was that easy, all you'd have to do is buy used ocean containers, right? Stuff them full of plant material and close the doors and let them sit in the Medford sun for what, six weeks and then drain them and then pull out compost. But that isn't the way it works. So you take it up to 140 in Oregon, I think, I think. I could be wrong, but at one time the 
under the rules of engagement for Oregon Till, uh, the organic uh, certification agency. It was 141 Fahrenheit, fair enough. So every for this discussion, almost everything's been killed because it, it swipes clean, you know, like the thing out of the Bible, the rain falls on the good and the evil, right? Well, the thermophilic came and it killed the good guys and the bad guys, they're gone. So then when we get into mesophilic, when we drop below 100, now we can start adding nutrient dense materials and you still wanna start turning that compost that the organisms that land on the outside are getting turned faster. I mean, eventually they're gonna, but you know, that's what, that's what the turning in the, in the mesophilic stage is. And we're gonna run that till we get down around 68, 65. And if you do it right, that could take several months. And that's a good thing because by doing that, you're increasing them all, all of them, protozoa, bacteria, you know, uh, fungi, you know, the whole nine yards. Mm -hmm. uh, anybody can make a high bacteria compost. Hell, I mean, just go over to Walmart. They got bags of it for two bucks out in the, you know, parking lot kind of so, thing. So I use a lot of, um, insect um, you know, inputs, you know, because I, I you know, for the mesophilic uh, bacteria as a mesophilic sure. right. right. and herbs, always my preferred um, inoculant yeah. to start a compost here when doing top dressing. Um, yeah, I, I've come to believe that, okay, I don't agree, but I'm going to agree to agree so that people, you know, they always want to get on something. And, 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 and. Okay. Let's all take it up to 140. Hell, fuck, take it up to 150. I don't care. You know, just burn the shit out of it, all right? Um, understanding, though, that when you do that, nature abhors a, a vacuum, right? So you got to be really proactive when you get down below 100 to start getting the good stuff going. But I think and believe sincerely that at about 115, 110, we could inoculate that with mycelium and kick that in and let it take care of some serious business as it drops down into mesophilic. And as you know, once you establish a big colony of mycelium, that attracts other fungal colonies. And there's the real benefit is that we're building diversity as well as deconstructing the straw, especially if you're using bedding. I'm thinking like a horse bedding is a real traditional uh, thing to use it's mixed in the manure and, and the uh, urine so you know some of that goes through the ther uh, thermophilic and doesn't break down like we want but we can use mycelium to deconstruct it and make those elements and compounds available to the bacteria that can then I'm glad to talk to somebody because everybody else goes no I don't think so uh, Beck okay worms can't eat anything they don't have teeth they don't have a stomach. They all they eat is bacteria, manure, bacteria, slime, exude, whatever nice term we want to use here. Poop, feces. Okay. So it's not like you put peach melba over in the corner and there's a signal. Oh, there's peach melba in the north end, and they all all the little wormies go over there. It's a, a bacteria, it's like any organism. The faster bacteria can break it down, that means there's going to be more poop. And more poop means more food for worms, so it increases their reproduction cycle. So you get faster reproduction, which is already off the chart anyway, uh, if you got things set up right. 
So the, and so then you add in some barley, and now we're going to bring in some uh, cofactors to break down some of the uh, saccharides and lignin and cellulose that's in the uh, compost. That's what I, I remember. Your your big um, advocate for for uh, malted barley. You use that a lot in, in your soil mix. Yep. <laughs> I was the one. I came up with that on a fluke. You know, I'll be the first to admit it. But regardless, uh, the changes in a in a, a garden in terms of the health of the plant. I can't I can't discuss genetics because. Well, I'm not interested. I mean, genetics are a personal choice, and if you if somebody got stung with a bad, you know, hey, welcome welcome to growing weed, man. I don't have to tell you, you know, not every not every seed that got uh, germinated uh, was worth the effort. You know, that's the law of the jungle and the way the cookie crumbles, man. And uh, I don't get too weak, but what I can say is that setting all that aside, what barley can do is increase the microbial activity in the soil. And, you know, a plant has two brain centers. The one is on a meristem is the apical meristem is the brain center. It controls the production of terpenes, terpenoids, ketones. It's there to protect the foliage, the biomass of the plant. Below the soil line, the uh, brain center is the taproot. The main root, and that's the one that's sending out the signal. Is you know, nutrients are called up by the plant. There's this idea. There's this idea by by cannabis growers that well, it look the plant looks like it needs fill in the blank. Pick one. I don't care. Uh, needs boron or something. You know, or you know, yeah, I don't, yeah, something right. Yeah, we gotta get something in there. All right. I gotta I get I got to get over the growth store and you know and get 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 my fix. Uh, my, my bottle is swell. It's that expensive bottle that does it. Coot. It's the, it's the boron one. Yeah. It's the, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. actually the most expensive bottle. That's the one that actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Of course. And uh, so, but the plant calls up those ions and the, the form of exchange is okay. Hydrogen. Hydrogen is the currency of soil microbes. That's why in pH, the H is capitalized because that means it's an element. The P, depending on who you talk to, it either means probable or potential hydrogen. That's okay. Let's, let's take this back to basic chemistry. If you were to ask a chemist, how do you write calcium? Or what's a symbol or, you know, for calcium, they, that person would say a capital uppercase C and a lowercase a, right? We'd all say, yeah, that, that's when I know. Now, if you were to ask a soil biologist, that soil biologist would say a capital C, lowercase a, and two plus signs. Two plus signs. Yeah, there's two exchange sites. So one calcium ion can take and, and exchange with two hydrogen ions. Now the plant can use it, and now it's taken up by the root system. That's how it works. So cation exchange is at the key of pH, not some bottle, not some, you know, magical, spiritual, uh, you know, burning of the sage or, you know, whatever they do at midnight out in a field somewhere. Um, yeah, that's the drill. I think, um, 
Are you familiar with the concept of redox? I'm not. I apologize. No. I'm not. Okay. But I wouldn't um, read much into that. I, you know, my, I, my uh, knowledge base is limited, I've been told. So. Okay. <laughs> um, so this is kind of a new concept to me, but um, how I understand it is redox is the um, density of electrons in the soil, like the charge mm. of the soil. Um, which is created by the plants and, you know, their signaling to the soil, you know, their amino acid enzymes, carbohydrate secretion, um, adding electron charge to the soil and that the, the chemical compounds, the bonding, the exchange, um, you know, they all take uh, a cost of, of available electrons. And by um, increasing that charge of electrons, um, you can increase the, the nutrient, like co compound bonding. Um, to make more available for your plant. Um, so it's one of the, the reasons why people are, are um, using living mulches and stuff like that. Um, this year I used buckwheat. Um, mm -hmm. It has a, um, a great, you know, uh, it, it creates redox, it creates an electrical charge, an electron charge mm -hmm. in your soil very well. Um, well from what I've read, this is a new concept to me though. Okay, uh, I, I know it under another name, I think. Okay. And that would be paramagnetism or paramagnetic. And for example, rock dust. Uh, volcanic rock is lava. That's what basalt is, is, uh, is paramagnetic. It carries a, a negative charge. And it, a subset of uh, basalt is uh, granite. So it also is paramagnetic. And the reason that's important is that the, the negative charge of that in the soil is what, because calcium is a positive charge. It's, it's a capital CA again with two plus signs and it carries, it's a cation. And that means it, it's a positively charged. A magnesium is a cation. Uh, oh, how'd they do that? Hold on a second. I'm sorry. I hit a button. Um, and so then a negatively charged uh, element would be called an anion. Silica. Yes. So your sil like your silica-based soil amendments that in an ITE, bentonite, zeolite, azomite, which is a brand name, but I don't remember the right name, but it's from the first deposit was found in France in like the 1400s. And it's what they make uh, the beehive ovens out of. It's a ceramic clay. Bentonite is, is mined here in Oregon over in uh, Christmas Valley, if you've ever been there. What a joke and name that is. Um, it's kitty litter. And if you want to use bentonite, just go get a bag of, uh, you know, kitty litter. You're, you're dancing. You don't need to go buy, you know, a bag in a grocery store for a hundred bucks. I mean, you go get a, a whole bag for what, 10 or something? Um, but the problem is that those are aluminous silicate uh, compounds. And through chelation, it can break apart. And now you've got free floating aluminum in your soil. Why would you do that? I, I was thinking I, a good name for a consulting company would be one word with a question mark on the end. Seriously? Because that's what I was, yeah, I used go, seriously, why would you do that? You know, we say, well, here's what we did. And you're just listening to it and you're going, whoa, holy shit. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs>
you've done a little bit of consulting. I know, I know the uh, the feeling oh, yeah. for sure. Oh yeah. Oh my god, I, what did you? <laughs> I'd rather I'd rather get a boil implant than uh, to go to anybody's garden again. And I mean, you just look at it, you. Know, what did you do? It's just like a, a part of my language, but it looks like a ship bomb went off. Right. Yeah. I mean, just like body, you know, pieces of body flesh hanging, like in a war zone or something. So I just, I, I have this, I have this thought because of the jacket that Fumador has on. Don't, you can't tell me that Fumador and Eminem don't look like brothers with the jackets. Mom's spaghetti, right? Yeah. Anyways. You know, and I've, I like and I've spaghetti with and, balls. <laughs> like you said, just spaghetti with balls. <laughs> and I, I've come to the understanding. I've accepted it. You know, uh, look, we never had this. We never had. You never had commercial grow. Yeah, you, you had guys that grew a lot of weed. I'm not saying that, but there were no commercial growers. Not like what we're talking about today, where you go out to you spent a quarter million dollars on a greenhouse. Really? I mean, I've seen a lot of greenhouses in my career. But I've never seen some of the shit I saw built here when it went legal. I mean, I was blown away. Somebody who just had way too much money and some pipe dreams. So you read all copies of the uh, marijuana botany book, huh? Oh, is that what built this? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, it blows it, blow, it blows my mind. But but see, I came out of a generation there was no commercial growers. I mean, if you got, you know, three plants out of your backyard, you know, and got through a couple of years, man, you were like yippy skippy. I mean, having a farm, come on. Okay, here's my, here's my favorite story. Here's my favorite story from the 80s. All right, so this group, they, they probably had, I don't know, we'll say six or seven strains. And they were all cool and shit, you know, because, you know, they, they had a clone and, you know, they're connected. They were like groovy and stuff. So they put the plants out in this in this area. This was around. Uh, I don't. I think it was Arcata. That part doesn't matter. But anyway, have you seen in a commercial nursery plants that have a aluminum tag on them, where they they take a stylus and they can write on it and it imprints it on the piece of aluminum. Well, they thought it'd be really groovy if they could tag the plant so that when they got out there and harvested and they could tell the the this from the that and the therefore, right? Mm-hmm. So the garden got discovered before harvest. And so they took a, the investigating officers took a couple of the aluminum pieces, or the tags, and ran them to the FBI database. And so they had a name of everybody that touched those pieces of aluminum. And so, and they didn't go back and chop it down or anything. Didn't do anything like that at all. They waited till about a month after harvest. And then there was a come to Jesus meeting. They just grabbed everybody, you know, at the same time and the same day. And, you know, that was it. So out of ego, like if you're growing that much, who cares? Who cares what strain it is? I mean, mix it up, you know. Anyway, so so as early as the 83, that kind of stupidity was already starting. No, we have the Arcata, you know, killer, or we have the the Humboldt 
horny or something, you know, some silly ass name. Like, who cares? Somebody has, so all I'm saying is this wasn't the brightest group of people that put this together. All right. I'll just leave yeah. it at that. Yeah, just throw tons of money at a project and it's going to be successful, right? Yeah. That's how it works. Just dump a bunch of money into it. The part I don't understand, this and this one has me puzzled, is that when it became legal here five years ago, be six years this January, within the first six months, the number of grocery stores that closed their doors was mind-boggling. I mean, you're talking about people that were players way before there was a, a medical card thing here in Oregon. You know, we're talking like the mid '90s, um, and there were—I mean, there were grocery stores in, in the '80s. And then, like, as soon as it got legal, man, it was over. They just like went away. I don't understand how the two are connected, but. Um, it's kind of adapt right I guess so I mean not competitively excluded <laughs> no a guy from your part of the world and he's been growing long before it was there was a medical you know he's old timer about 30 years or more mm -hmm. and like he told me he says hey man don't you get it he goes I have to grow what the dispensaries want to sell I don't take it to them and go, here, you want, no, this is the one you want. If they want whatever, that's okay. what I'm going to grow. You know, this isn't, this isn't Woodstock anymore. You know, it's over. And if they want to grow spittles or skittles or piddles or whatever the fucking name is. Uh, yeah. So. Just chicken and egg, right? You know, like the, the customers come in basically saying, what's your highest THC? And they don't really know a lot of strains. The, the few that they yeah. know maybe are the OG yeah. Kush or somebody, you know, some fancy thing, like you said, Skittles or Runs or whatever that their friend told them about is you yeah. know, a hot new thing. That's right. Where they see maybe they have a high time subscription or something else. Yeah, and they yeah, basically yeah, exactly. just, oh, just give me that. Yeah. And then that's all that ever sells, you know? Yeah. It's, it's pretty reductive. It's, I it's, get it's it. sad. Yeah. See, Yeah, the, it is. It's a, it's a weird business. I mean, look, you know as well as I do since you live, well, all three of us, Luna, uh, you and myself, we all live in Oregon, and we've seen the changes in the last five or six years. And, uh, you know, anybody that has a pipe dream of getting a license and making a million, I mean, sober up, get in a 12-step program immediately, Okay. <laughs> And give it up because it isn't going to happen. It just isn't going to happen. There's too much funny money floating around, you know, that backdoor pounds, you know, you know, who's running the big farms. And now you got black, I mean, now you got cartel people. I know there's a couple busted down in Southern Oregon, but there was one busted in Eastern Oregon two weeks ago. They had uh, almost 3,000, almost a ton and a half of properly dried, manicured, weed ready, a, a ton and a half on the property and 20,000 plants. That's crazy. They're all, they're all I, like human trafficking too. It's really terrible. I, look, there's only 4 million people in this whole state. 
So they're not growing it for Oregonians, I can tell you that. <laughs> California's got a shitload of growers. So we're, we must be going back to the Midwest. Gee, where have I heard that story? Let's see, 1976, going to Chicago. Yeah, I think I know that story. You know, stay out, stay out of the South. Avoid Texas at all costs. And if you can get it to New York, man, you're home free. If you, if you got the context. Yeah, New York's the big money. The big money. And you're in the big apple. Stupid money. Think about it. A pound sold for what a... Uh, a new Honda cost at that time. I mean, just when, when, oh, you're talking about in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, a, pound, okay. a, a pound of tie sticks was $3,200 and $3,200 would buy you a Honda Civic right off the lot with no pinstriping. You need to pay extra for that, but you know, you get the idea <laughs> or the rims or did you want a sound system? You know, you got, that's extra, but you know what I'm saying? So a pound of weed today, that'd be $11,500. Imagine that. Oh my God, little inflation. Yeah, that's what like eleven thousand dollars. That's like seven hundred an ounce, isn't it? I don't know. It's yeah, it's too crazy to to even try to comprehend. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. Stoners will pay anything. Well, there's see today's market is cannabis consumers okay and that's a different market than the generation i came out of because we were true cannab cannabis abusers i mean we smoked a lot of weed our goal was to find a better weed than the last bowl we had and to that it became a lifelong pursuit mm. so uh money wasn't an object because money is you know Sometimes you have good times and bad money, and sometimes you have bad times and good money. You know what I mean? It's uh, the two never seem to, or at least in my world. I mean, it was either feast or famine on both, uh, you know, paradigms. So, but it's different. Today's person wants, like uh, Fume said, they want to walk into a dispensary and talk to the most unemployable person on the face of the earth, a bud tender. Uh, so what do I do for this pimple on my ass? Oh, well, you want the, uh, you know, the candy pinstriper. Oh, okay. You know, and they, oh, can I get that in a cartridge? Oh, yes, sir. We, uh, you know, so anyway, it's not the same thing as getting a bag of really good weed. Dude, everyone, know, everyone knows the pimple on the ass issue is solved by smoking more pur purple punch. That's the way. Yeah, you're right. Or a purple Urkel or something, you know, or I don't know. What do you think about using, um, aloe vera in your garden actually i claim responsibility for bringing that to the party several years ago as a matter of fact jeremy at uh, build a soil he built the entire company on selling aloe vera powder at one time aloe vera powder that one skew item in his business paid all of, he told me that i'm not i mean he shared that with me that paid his entire payroll was just the aloe vera powder. Now, if I lived where you lived, where you have better weather, because it is a, a, it came out of Egypt and then went to India, but that's the history on it. Um, I would be growing like big, big, big outdoor plants. You can't have too much aloe vera. I tried, so, you know, I tried growing aloe vera in ground 
out here. I got too cold. Just yeah. Okay, that's the um, problem. You got to move it. You got to either put a hoop over it or move it into it. You know, yeah. You got to protect against cold. That's but for your own home because like you want it in your kitchen. So if you get a burn or you get a, a, a cut, you want to be able to cut a piece of the leaf off. And I, I swear to God, if you say this happened to me, this is a real life situation. I was cooking something in a cast iron Dutch oven and I wasn't thinking and I grabbed the handle and I grabbed it hard because I was going to lift it. And so, I mean, I really got a my whole hand and I had aloe vera and I put it on there. It never even gave me a welt. And the sting was gone in a matter of a few, oh, let's say a minute. I mean, there was absolutely no pain whatsoever. And if you go into any pharmacy and whether you had a prescription in your hand or an over-the-counter product, it's for your skin, I promise you, it has salicylic acid, if not aloe vera in the formula. It's that ubiquitous. And so it's one of the best, it's the first plant that the human race domesticated. The Egyptians used it uh, in the mummification process. They would rub the body down with aloe vera gel, the inside of the plant. And that would protect, they weren't biologists, microbiologists, then, but this is what it, what it did is that the antibacterial properties protected the uh, corpse from rotting before they could finish the entire mummification process. And so then the plant went to India, which historically been one of the main uh, epicenters of plant distribution via the Silk Road, and then later, much later, the Spice Root. So it's been a trader of plants, you know, for millennia. Um, in modern day, what it's modern day uh, Afghanistan, was uh, at the turn of the, of the last century, was considered um, part of India, the, the Majarajas, you know, the guys with the big beards and the turbans and all that stuff. And they were the ones that kept the Rolls Royce alive because they were the biggest customer of Rolls Royce uh, luxury cars in the 20s and 30s. Because, you know, if they could own 10 or 12, that showed they had more money than the Maharaja in the next district who only had six or you know whatever kind of thing so uh yeah so how do you like to use um aloe vera in your garden what what stages do you like to use that all stages i start from stages. cloning because uh -huh. aloe vera contains as well we already talked about salicylic acid and so if you take a piece of the leaf off say about they say you're going to do uh, uh uh six cuts how's that so uh, we'll say, okay, so take the piece about, oh, I don't know, four or five inches long and cut off the, the spikes on each side of the prond. Okay, so now, you, so now you've got the gel exposed on, on four sides and take the blunt end of a shish kebab stick and push in six holes around inside the gel. Then take your cuts and you pop them in that gel and let them sit overnight or maybe even 24 hours and now remove them and put them in whatever system you use. I don't care. That doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean anything. That right there will sterilize in a good way, pasteurize, that's a better word. It will pasteurize that clone 
prevent it from getting infected. It provides antiviral protection, antibacterial, pathogenic fungi. I mean, it's a wonder drug. That's the basis of aspirin is salicylic acid. So you know what I've been doing? Um, I've been making willow water, the boiling yeah. willow in, in water and then sticking my cuts in that. Because, well, it's, um, the same, it's the same compound. I'm just saying, yeah, Willows, oh. that's how Dr. Bayer, who invented Bayer aspirin, when he mm -hmm. started it back in 1880, he was getting the salicylic acid from willow shoots. I thought it was, I thought the, the, the willow shoot was more rich in the endolpatyric acid. That could be. But okay. I know that, I know that Bayer was not aware of aloe vera because the amount of aloe vera, and you can buy if you wanted to get a, a kilo, a kilo of aloe vera, it's only $50 uh, mm -hmm. from a lab supply house. That's a pharmaceutical grade salicylic acid. That's what commercial nurseries buy because one kilo will make 55 gallons of rooting gel. Can you imagine that? You have to, you know, I did, I, I've looked into this a little bit and you have to like, um, you have to, because the compound isn't water soluble, you have to dilute it in uh, ethanol, right? You have to, or, um, dissolve it in ethanol um, before you dilute it. Isn't, isn't that correct? So it's not water soluble, salicylic acid? That could be confusing. Yeah, this, here, I, okay, check this out. It's phyto, you know, P-H-Y-T-O, uh -huh. phyto. It's about the phytotech lab. Yeah, phytotech. that's it. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and they sell all... They sell all kinds of compounds, but they also, one of them they sell is salicylic acid for like 50 bucks a kilo. And they would be able to answer, because I don't want to mislead you, but that would be my source if I were going to buy it again. Let me see if I can look at it. I mean, that's a pretty cheap rooting agent, you know. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm big, I'm big on making ferments. I'm a big, big ferment nerd and just- Oh, sure nerd and stuff so i like making my things and also i would feel like i'm somehow cheating buying um pure compounds like this um, oh i know i see that there's um a pure tricontinol in here too yeah um, that costs more than god ever intended too the molecular I mean. structure thing <laughs> i'm looking at it on here uh but it's just like it just seems like such a cheat like you're just cheating like what a what a cheat well, but I, mean, I was, I was the one several years ago, probably about ten years ago, that started talking about using aloe vera to root. And um, I've always used that because we have a lot of Mexican, and you do too, down in your part of Mexican markets, and they mm -hmm. always have aloe vera leaves. So even if I were my situation, because it's too cold up here near Portland, so I just buy the leaves from the store, and uh, you know they're like under two bucks, and Awesome. My God, you know, that's like three weeks of use for me. And I will tell you that when I use aloe vera and then uh, make a tea out of the gel, the outside isn't harmful. I'm not saying that, but it's, uh, it has a lot of polysaccharides. And if, if that's why it's not good for humans to eat it or give it to an animal, because as the British say, it gives you the winds. Okay. <laughs> Because it doesn't, you know, your body can't break it down. It's cellulose. It's uh, polysaccharides, right? So, but the gel inside, because it's uh, a forerunner of aspirin, if you have a headache, 
and you uh, consume like a, you know, a tablespoon or whatever of aloe vera gel, your headache's gone in a matter of a few minutes. It's that fast acting. And so, so we can we can mix it in water and break it down and then apply it to the soil uh, in our plants. I mean, it's like a, a, a steroid. The plants just I, go bam. I use it a lot um, in, in yeah. uh, like the vegetative periods and I'll buy the long spears, the leaves or stakes, they might call them. And I just blend the whole thing up and then I run it through a strainer um, yeah. to get all the pulp out. Um, and yeah. just you know, add that to my um, post composty brew. I added at the end of a composty brew. Um, for, you know, like the, the salicylic acid and the oxygen, right. the, the amino acid profile. Yeah. I also make, use it in my smoothies and stuff like that too. You had mentioned polysaccharides. I'm, I'm like, that's like kind of the thing I'm like nerding out on right now. It's like uh -huh. the use of polysaccharides um, in composty brewing and in like soil biology um, to maximize the diversity of biology. Yeah. I'm wondering if, what you thought about that. Well, I'm a little confused. I mean, the role of chitin, as an example, seems to be a little bit misunderstood. Okay. The chitin in and of itself is really, eh, it's a moot point. It's a, it, okay, chitin is an acetyl form of glucosamine, okay? okay? So when, and the only thing it can break down that uh, type of compound is fungi and okay. bacteria in its feeble attempt to break it down, produce a enzyme called chitinase. In fact, there's a commercial product called chitosan and that's how it's manufactured. They take chitosan or chitin and put it into uh, water and add this uh, bacteria. And then they collect the, chit the chitinase and bottle it and sell it as, why? Because the chitinase, the enzyme, uh, destroys eggshells. So that's really important in adding it to your soil to kill uh, soil-borne uh, insects, invaders, if you will. It can also be used effectively as a spray, but it isn't the chitin itself. It's the bacterial action on the chitin that gives you the chitinase. But here's another big step that'll really help you in your research. And I mean this sincerely. Okay, Dr. Albert Hoffman, the man who uh, created, discovered, whatever term you want to use, uh, LSD, he graduated from Cologne University at the age of 22 with a PhD in chemistry because he had broke the code on chitin and discovered the molecular uh, structure, not the formula, but the structure. Chitin is used in... Um, surgical um, thread, both internal and external to sew you up. You're, if you got your teeth pulled or tooth pulled or something, they would sew up the, and the reason that chitin is good is that it prevents infection and helps it heal faster. So, uh, so they can heal before infection sets in. And it's still used today. It's not the only surgical thread, but it's still the more it's traditional, definitely. It goes back to 1880s. So this isn't anything new. And Hoffman, that was so important that Sandoz Laboratory hired him on graduation as a, with a PhD and put him in Switzerland at their headquarters. And he was working on a uh, cure for uh, migraine headaches. 
and he had these packs of rye molds that he had grown the rye and collected the molds and isolated them and packed. He had gone through packs one through 24 and put it away for several months or even maybe a couple of years. And then one rainy night in his study pulled out pack 25 and that's how the name LSD 25 came. It was the 25th pack. That's the only thing it means. So uh, if you want to read it, but anyway, yeah, if you want a really, really good book, read uh, LSD, My Problem Child by Albert Hoffman. Okay. I mean, he was there and I mean, it's a really good book. Um, and he was also the man who studied the first samples of psilocybin mushrooms out of Oaxaca. And he actually gave the name to the two compounds, psilocin and psilocybin. So that's pretty amazing. I mean, he was involved in LSD in the late 30s and early 40s. And then in 58, he was the guy that looked at the mushrooms and said, hey, here's your compounds, they're beta-glucans, it's uh, psilocybin and then psilocin. Beta-glucans, polysaccharide. Yeah. So, yeah, so, um, oh, it's not here. Oh, okay. Um, so, there yeah, he so is. I put yeah. together this, this um, you know, composty food source thing that I'm working on um, with, you know, all five different categories of polysaccharides from um, mushrooms, you know, uh, plant matter, cellulose, you know, starch, um, algae, and uh, insects, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then I try to um, find that, that break down those polysaccharides. Um, one of them that I use is I use fermented soybeans for the, um, the chitinase. Um, to add to the, the composty brew to kind of help it break down so that the biology can, can create that diversity. Does that make, does that make sense to you? Am I, do I have something you kind of... Well, I, I, I don't, guess I don't understand. I mean, again, we got to go back to what chitin is. Uh -huh. is, it, is it, okay, is the soybean giving you chitinase or chitin? Chitinase. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, yeah. now I do. Because the other thing that might... <laughs> Across with my chitin source. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, and I get it. Okay, 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 and, okay. And I'm using mushroom extracts also, so I'm using mushroom okay. extract across with my chitin source, and then I'm using fermented soybean meal. And usually, I'll okay, now it I makes sense. <laughs> now it makes sense because uh -huh. I wouldn't. I was understanding how adding chitin would do anything, but chitinase is a whole different. Because yes, it's a powerful pesticide. Um, and uh, that's why it's also effective uh, as a fol foliar spray, you know. So mm -hmm. your, pr your product could be used as a foliar spray. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Because there's, a, if there's an important, not a concept, but a truth. <clears throat> In our bodies, we call it an immune system. In plants, it's referred to as a pathway. And the chitinase chitinase hyphen salicylic acid pathway is one of it's like the white blood cell pathway immune system is in our bodies that's how important chitinase is so if you if you uh, isolated that phrase chitin chitinase hyphen salicylic acid um you i think get some information that will really help you make uh the decision that you want you know that would be helpful to see your project. So well, yeah, I'm using, uh, you know, I'm using the aloe vera. Oh yeah, um, absolutely great. So, you know, I just use like 
sometimes I feel like I'm going way overboard with my super complicated compost use, but like my plants just raged this season. Um, It's working, you know, it works really well. Although my my biggest problem was that I way outgrew my pots. I way pushed the limits of my 400 gallon pots. (laughs) I was like root bound like mid July. (laughs) So um, I started seeing a little bit of yellowing kind of early on and had a problem solve that, you know, added some amino acids. I, I went and we can uh, imagine what people are growing 800 gallon smart pots buried. Okay. So they bury them in the ground to reduce, uh, evaporation. Uh-huh. Uh, and the reason that they do them in the smart pots in ground is that they can put two or three layers of uh, chain link fence. So it acts as a barrier against moles and voles and gophers to some degree. Uh-huh. You know, it's an, it's an attempt, you know, a hope and a dream is what I call it. But anyway, so then uh, you put in the sun, you know, they run the soil four or five years without, you know, none of this fresh soil bullshit. And they, you know, hit it with cover crops after harvest, you know, put in some, you know, the mixes that have like hairy vetch and clover and, you know, some beans, you know, they're usually like 10 or 12. What's that? So, so things you'll never get out of the environment ever again. No, no, I meant the, the seeds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never mind. It's okay. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, that's great. Are they reamending? Are they doing? Uh, they're doing no-till and just like top dressing their amendments and. Uh... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. They're living on. Uh, what do you call it? Oh yeah, the the uh, microbiology, mm-hmm. which uh, really. Oh, never mind. That's that's almost philosophical. I want to go there, uh, but there's more to bi- the soil biology than usually gets discussed. And the diversity that you establish, the the uh, herring up of the soil for what reason? Well, I want my soil to be fresh. I go to ancient forests. You know how old that soil is? You- Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> yeah. The, the whole like compaction issue I think can be can be yeah. solved with destroying it with tractors right yeah you can, I, you can plants in them I, like uh, there's a there's a group of family farms over in eastern Oregon eastern Washington called Shepherd's Green and mm-hmm. they practice uh, legitimate no-till sustainable agricultural practice and then in the winter time they plant uh, uh, garbanzo beans and they grow gar- organic garbanzo beans on the land because they're in legumes so they set nitrogen in the soil mm-hmm. so when they replant in the win- uh, spring with the barley seed or excuse me wheat uh, seeds so they're getting two crops they're getting a crop of organic uh, garbanzo beans which are like gold because every every culture uses them uh, it's the most widely grown legume in the world and then they're getting this incredible flower uh, that they have milled under the shepherd's grain label. And uh, yeah, it has, a, it's almost got, it has like a yellowish color to the flower. It's not white, like it's been bleached with chlor- Clorox or something, you know? So it, it like, looks like a food when you bake a nice loaf of bread or something, you know? That's cool. Yeah. So when people say to me, well, you can't do it on a big scale, how much bigger do you get than, you know, a 3,000 acre wheat farm? 
So I, okay. I, um, I did what you suggested and I looked up um, the relationship between chitinase salicylic acid and um, it pops up here um, that jasmonic acid plays a big role in, you know, there's these three compounds really interact with each other really well. And I'm actually, I use a lot of jasmonic acid. Um, it's good. You know, I was talking about it earlier in the, the, the show. Um, good. What uh, source are you, how are you getting it? Or what source do you I, use? So I'm fermenting premature blackberries. Okay. You ever heard of that? Yes. Yeah. They're the scourge of uh, people in Portland. Invasive yeah. as shit, man. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Any, the, the anything property. to eradicate them sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The property among is surrounded by them. Um, yeah. Myself and, and um, uh, you know, a friend. We, yeah. um, we went like a five gallon bucket and uh, fermented it. Oh, cool. Yeah, oh, he brought up some, some jasmonic acid. So that's really interesting. So like there was this, this um, interaction between these three compounds I didn't even really know and I was just using all three of them. I'll See? do some research. That's great. On... I mean, you got the right, you got all the tools. If you got the germonic acid, the aloe vera is gonna give you the salicylic acid. And remember, it's an, a nutrient accumulator, so you're not just getting salicylic acid, you're getting a full range of probably 90 compounds, excuse me, uh, elements. In terms of compounds, I would imagine at least 250, at least. Um, awesome. Oh, cool. So in That's there, so you're going to have uh, terpenes, terpenoids, triterpenoids, um, et cetera, et cetera. Very nice. Oh, this is gold. This is great. It's like, um, it destroys a bunch of pathogens. Yes. So you can see by using these tools that we can create an incredibly healthy soil so that plant can focus on producing biomass, which is what plants do. Barley yeah. has a lot of jasmonic acid. Really? I would imagine, yeah. Yeah. I have a paper written by a, a PhD candidate in Norway. So it's her entire dissertation. And I'll have to send it to you because it, it is one of the most thorough pieces on barley as it relates to brewing. But we can take those truisms and apply it to botany or soil biology, at least. And uh, it's my opinion, and partly because I really introduced it to the cannabis scene. I think it's one of the most important things we can use in our gardens is, is aloe vera juice. And don't buy the bottle shit, go to a Mexican market, give them, yep. you know, or Asian markets usually carry them to the, uh, certainly the uh, Thai and uh, uh, Cambodian and Vietnamese, not so much the Chinese maybe, but you get the idea, you can get them. Yeah, you know. yeah that's what I do, I go to the Mexican market. In yeah. Menford. You're dancing. Now it's going to be sold out. And uh, for anyone that doesn't know what this is, this is Dr. Duke's phytochemical and ethnobotanical database. You can use it to find all kinds of cool stuff uh, plant hormones, auxins. Uh, we used to hey, Back in uh, the day at IC Mag when we all got started, now they're all, you know, consultants and shit. And we were just posters. Kim Wilson and I used to argue tooth and nail, and he was our go-to guy, the Dr. Dukes. He, that, uh, there was, there's a program at Department of Agriculture called ARS, 
it's that stands for agriculture research station so let's say in the state of kansas we'll say where wheat might be a big crop the department of agriculture would put one of their employees at the university of kansas if that's the school or the agricultural school right and they're there not to teach they're there to assist the teaching staff in that department for there for the rest of the state. So they have a, a it's called the ARS. And Dr. Duke was uh, he ran the ARS at the University of Missouri. That's how that got started. And then when he retired, I don't know how it worked out, but someone else got a hold in a good way. And he wasn't they didn't steal it. So put it in a form that's more readable like it is now. It wasn't always as readable as it is now. So on that note, University of Oregon, which is, a, it's unusual. Every state almost has an ARS for agriculture, right? Because every state does something, maybe not. Yeah, they got it. They got an agriculture research station. University of Oregon has one for agriculture and has one for horticulture. So they have one that uh, for horticulture is to assist the wholesale nursery sector on how to maximize profits, uh, you know, increase soil tilth, things like that. And uh, I mean, there's some real experts in those organizations. These aren't flukes. These aren't, hey, last week I was a soil biologist and this week I'm going to be a, a cannabis, you know, consultant. Oh, okay. What are you going to do next week? You know, that kind of thing. Right. I'm a master grower this week. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be a master grower, whatever that means. Get a yeah. hat, make it official. Yeah, yeah. I think I think uh, seriously with a question mark would be a good name for a company. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> hey, so are you very familiar with um, curry natural farming techniques? I didn't know it until I talked to Mr. Uh, Trump. Mr. Trump on mm -hmm. uh, this show as well as uh, uh, Fumador's show, and what. Um, he helped me learn is that uh, it all came from uh, Fukuoka, uh, the One Straw Revolution. Okay. The, the, from Japan. Uh, yes, from Japan, yeah. I, from what I understand, from like the rice empire days, from like all the competing, um, uh, you know, rice empires <laughs> were developing techniques and stuff for uh, low, low cost farming. And, but yeah, I mean, he was the first one that, that created the seed bombs where you, you pack them with mud uh, and seeds. And then when it comes time to plant, you throw the balls out into the field. They do the same thing in India, except they load the, uh, the mud with uh, um, and manure. I forgot the manure. Uh, with neem, uh, neem seed meal. And then uh, put the seeds in, let it dry. And so then when it's time to plant in the spring or whatever, uh, after the monsoons, they, they throw the balls out of the back of a truck uh -huh. and there you go. It's, you got your field. So there's a lot of it. So the Japanese is based a lot on the Indian. The Indian can go, we can date that back to the uh, Ayurvedic, which predates the Hindu era. But yeah, I mean, there are a lot of, the, all this stuff is, you, you know, that's what Mr. Trump and I were talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, you can trace a lot of these back to all kinds of cultures, Chinese, Indian, uh, down southeast, modern day Thailand. You, know, you got 
what was yeah. one time 1200 buddhist temples they know a thing or two about farming they were self-supporting think about that 1200 yeah. monasteries the romans were using uh lactobacillus ferments also yeah yeah so um and i and i also i was familiar more with the uh, gil karandang in the late 90s uh from the philippines he'd had uh almost identical recipes um like uh calcium phosphate so you take your eggshells and you heat them up and you char them till they're black mm -hmm. then you grind them in i think it's vinegar i think that's it anyway yeah. so you don't only get the calcium from the eggshells because most of it's uh calcium carbonate but you mm -hmm. there is some phosphorus and that gets uh converted to calcium or bonded and becomes calcium phosphate so some of those recipes you know i, I did them all um i couldn't handle the smell of a. Uh, I don't care how much you clean the eggs. You smell like shit when you get them on the barbecue and uh, you're trying to... Got to get all that film off of it. It's yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of value. I, I tell you, though, and I don't mean this... I mean, it's in the most sincere way. W once I learned how to really do worm castings the right way, it takes a couple of years to really get it down. Um shit's magical oh yeah i use earthworm casting more than anything else yeah it's just fucking magical if you I'm can actually... get up if you can get up to portland mm -hmm. i got a source he's there's only four people on the entire west coast that i would buy from and i was his first customer that answered his uh what's it called uh, the new online newspaper where you put ads to sell shit uh, Craigslist. Thank you. I was the oh. first guy to answer his Craigslist and went. There, he says, "Bring a bucket." Classifieds. I, to... I couldn't even think of the word. It used to, before Craigslist. It was classifieds. Uh, oh. Craigslist murdered uh, classifieds. Remember, you used to actually have to pay to to run classifieds, and then you had to buy a newspaper to look oh, at the geez. classifieds. You yeah. look at the back of the class. Oh, there's cars, 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 cars. He's a great that man. Like Gil Randings, you know, I like him because he's not trying to get rich. He works in third world countries trying to help people increase food production and nutritional value. That's really important. Um, and things, you know, I, I like the whole idea of making your own uh, fertilizers, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call them. Yeah, I think that's a way to go. I don't have much. Uh... Hey, scroll back up a little bit there, Steve. No, the other way. Okay, I think I saw Diver, Steve Diver's name. No, keep going. No, the other way. Yeah, there it is, Steve Diver. I did a show with him. It's pretty interesting. He used to be with a group called ATRA that we worked at, we were part of the United States Department of Agriculture. And they're uh, in this sub agency, if you will would help farmers move from conventional to through trend uh, transitional to final certified organic. And he headed up that office. Uh, now he's at the university of uh, Kentucky heading up the uh, cannabis uh, research Can cannabis and hemp. I think more hemp than cannabis, but. Hey, what was the name of that earthworm casting um, producer that you were just talking about? North, uh, Northwest Redworm. Northwest Redworm in Camus. 
hope that's the right way to pronounce it. Camus, Camus, Washington. It's right across the river. They're the kind. They're the kind. Are you familiar with the the ferment called? Um, I mean, they call it Oriental Herbal Nutrient. No, but I I wouldn't read so it, much into that. Yeah, so it's a it's a combination of tinctures um, from garlic, licorice. Oh, oh wow! Ginger. Okay, it's garlic, licorice, ginger, cinnamon bark, and angelica root. Mm. Um, they tincture, they ferment and tincture, each one of them separately, um, and then mix them all together. Um, and they use that as, a, um, as an anti-pathogenic um, in the, the KNF system. Oh, okay. No, I'm not. Think, you're not familiar with that? No, I, and I, and I always get a lot of criticism on this and it's almost become comical. Um, I use something that's been used in agriculture for 6,000 years and up until a few months ago, I didn't realize it, I, it's worse than Roundup. Poison worse than Roundup. Oh yeah. What is, what is, what's worse than He's being sarcastic. Knee uh, oh, meal. Oh. Knee meal. <laughs> yeah, it, it causes inverted nipples, uh, distended rectum, uh, Lesions on your brain. Isn't you know. that the azadiractin? What is it called? Azadiractin. The yeah, that's what it is. Okay. Yeah, the, the killer, the worst than glyphosate. <laughs> uh, the pro there is a problem with those extracts, and uh -huh. Steve and I talked about it on another show. Um, okay. Those are those are manufactured products: the azatrol and azatron, azatrol and azamax. I guess we're the two. Mm -hmm. One was General Hydroponics, the other was at uh, Gentlemen at Advanced Nutrients. Big boy Mike yeah. hangs out hangs out with child molesters. Um, so those are made with solvents. Well, duh. Alcohol, yeah. No, I mean like real solvents, <laughs> the real the real thing. Oh, we're talking about the, the azatrol. Those, yeah, those two products. They make them uh, in, in India. Uh, Azagard, Azamax. Azamax, Azatrol. Anything with the word in the, in the fertilizer world, in the fertilizer world around this globe, the word Aza, AZA, means that it's an azadiractin extract. So all these two remote companies did was buy some Aza out of India, God knows from who. And rebadged it as Azatrol, and the other one is Azamax. That's how the fertilizer industry works. That's a far different cry from organically pressed neem seed meal. You know, once you like any seed, once you press the oil out, you're left with cake or meal. So soybean meal is they press the oil out for making fuel or whatever. Mm -hmm. You're left with soybean meal. That's true of everyone except for alfalfa. You're not pressing oil out of alfalfa seeds for Christ's sake. The cost would be prohibitive. Can you imagine what three tons of goddamn alfalfa seeds would cost? You'd get what? You couldn't even get a 55 gallon barrel. You know, but anyway, you get the idea. So that's what neem is once you it's press it. It's going to be the, the new dabbing trend, Coot. They're going to be dabbing that in Puffco's. They're going to be dabbing the alfalfa I oil. I, I'm I, I, Full gram I dabs, bro. I just got to get a TikTok account. I think that's it. 
if I get an Android phone and a TikTok account, I'll be cool, you know. But anyway, uh, so the oil, the, I buy organic oil out of India. Um, and the oil, once the oil is pressed and this meal is collected and it's the, that's the meal. And it provides levels of uh, protection in your soil that Steve asked me one time, well, what do you do about, I think it was gnats or something, soil gnats or I don't know, root gnats or whatever the fuck it was. I said, I don't. I've never had them. I put neem. Yeah, I put a cup of neem and I put the same amount of kelp is kelp one cup in a cubic foot 120 cups there's one cup of neem this had to be really powerful stuff it would if it you know we're gonna like kill you so we you're using the oil i use the oil on the leaves yeah during veg okay. uh to eradicate uh the you yeah, know I, the usual the mites okay you know you know oregon there's more right. fucking mites in this state they should make that the state animal Spider-Man. Yeah. We didn't get any Spider-Man. It's from the nurseries. I mean, that's yeah. that's the okay, everybody look, they're here. It's perfect conditions. You got agriculture, you got horticulture, you got stoners. I mean, there's a whole mix of people that are contributing to the issue. So it's mm -hmm. unfair of me to say, well, it's these guys, it's everybody. And but yeah, if you're gonna grow here, I don't care if it's a personal gardener, I don't care if you're you know, Johnny Whiplash to and 40,000 square feet, you're going to be dealing with mites on some level. And uh, there's big money in mites. Good I mean, that's where consultants make their big money. Oh, well, we'll have to try this other one. You know, uh, it could have been, they might be hybrids. So we'll try this uh, concoction. You know, good luck. Have at it. You'd think they'd be able to identify them properly the first time. Hey, look, if it were that easy, Companies like uh, Monrovia that has a 1,000 acre, 1,000 acre uh, nursery here, you, and they around the country totally have 8,000 acres. You don't think if it weren't a, a snap of the fingers, they wouldn't have figured it out. Do you know how many PhDs they have on staff at between was it nine locations around the world? So, I was yeah. telling friend in one week they do eight to ten thousand cuts. Wow. With less fanfare than a typical grower does trying to get his uh, six for his next cycle. Eight, eight to 10,000 a week. That's a lot of cuts. I'm getting kind of tired, Mr. Q. It's, it's about, I got to get up, get to the farm in, in the, in the AM. I think I'm about ready to wrap it up. Thanks for, so much for joining us tonight. Let me pull up your. Uh... Instagram again, uh, real quick. So, uh, why don't you tell everybody how to find you and the content that you create because you do quite a bit. Um, yeah, so uh, you can find you can find the Facebook group um, that I started, the Regeneration Earth by Skunk Magazine. Um, I'm also um, administrator for the Organic Cultivators Group, the Probiotic Farmers Alliance, um, and moderate for the KNF group. Um, uh, those are the, the, I don't know if I said organic cultivators or not. Um, those are like the biggest ones that um, uh, that I administer for. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at uh, Luna All Day with one A, so L U N A L L D A Y. 
Yeah, my my articles are on skunk uh, skunkmagazine.com um, under my my author name, you know, Luna Luna Wake my name. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think that's about it. That's about it. Well, thank you. Yeah, you could, you could, um, yeah, find me on social media or something with some um, stay connected. Uh, absolutely. I've got some uh, uh, papers. Uh, I have a whole book on, written by uh, four PhDs from uh, India just on the subject of salicylic acid. So there's a lot of discussion on its relationship with uh, the chitinase and other. Every plant produces chitinase, every plant produces salicylic acid. Uh, but what we're doing here, when we use uh, when we use aloe vera juice in the soil, we'll say for example, is that we're adding uh, additional saponins. So we're adding things uh, into the soil that's keeping the roots clean and moving elements that may have been lodged into an, a zone that where other uh, roots can get it. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of factors that uh, I think you'd find interesting. And so it's in a PDF. Uh, excuse me, it's in a PDF format. So I'll get that to you. And I think you'd, uh, it would uh, give you some other uh, considerations, you know, uh, and, and to bolster up what you're already doing. In other words, Fantastic. I like the germanic acid. So, yeah, I appreciate all of your, your, um, your help and your knowledge and your insights and stuff. It was really great getting to talk to you. Oh, me too. I really enjoyed talking with you tonight. A lot of fun. Excellent. Well, yeah, Thanks have a good night. On. Thank you, Steve, and, and um, uh, Fumi for, uh, Fumi for, uh, for letting me on your show and and uh, do it again if, if you want me to. Oh, yeah. We'd love to have you on and uh, definitely check out uh, Fumi's show, too. Yeah, I was going to say, should come on our show. We'd like to talk about this kind of stuff and more. Sweet. Yeah, I'd love to. Right on. Sweet. Have a good night, gentlemen. Good night. Awesome. Well, um, she had told you aloe vera, aloe vera, man. You want you want a great plant. You want one healthy. You want that soil biology kicking. Um, stay away from uh, swill. Aloe vera leaves, man. You know, here's the thing. Let's say you're a commercial grower, and so you go to a commercial uh, produce company like one of the big ones here in Portland, and you can get a whole case that's thirty pounds of leaves for 22 bucks out the door. That's a lot, man, for, if you had a commercial grow, put, turning that into a, a, God, I hate this word, a tea. I mean, it would, by the next morning, you'd be blown away at, at uh, how your plants had changed overnight. So it's a very inexpensive. Uh, I often forget to bring that up actually, Coot. Uh, thank you for reminding me and, and reminding everybody else. And, and holy cow, like uh, we always talk about barley and, you know, I, I mentioned it on the show, but aloe is uh, equally, if maybe equally important, like honestly, yeah. maybe not more important, but equally important. You can use it for so many different yeah. things. It has its own sort of nutritive effect. At least the plants are always just more happy when you use it. And I've gotten to the point where uh, luckily for me, I've been growing an aloe plant or at least, you know, now it's several aloe plants, basically in one big old pot for the longest time now. Uh, it's several years old, so uh, Saint Bernard's has mentioned, you know, a few times that aloe is actually quite more, uh, quite a bit more effective as it uh, uh, matures a bit, I guess, uh, 
couple of years or whatever. Anyway, regardless. So my pot, my plant is certainly, you know, old enough for that. And uh, uh, I can take off entire arms of it basically and blend them, uh, put them in the, basically the, the, yeah. the watering medium, water it in yeah. the plants and boom, immediately the plants are happier Absolutely. over 12 hours. But and, it is and, actually really cheap at like Asian markets. You know, they pick it up for like a buck a, a, a stock. You don't have to buy a whole case. You know what I'm talking about? Like, uh, you know, here on 82nd, like the Vietnamese markets, you know. Hong oh, absolutely. Stuff, yeah. Every big town has the, you know, Vietnamese well, or even, Korean I, or maybe not Korean, day, but like Vietnamese, Southeast Asian. Yeah. The other day we were with a big Korean chain, uh, H-Mart over in Tigard. And there's one downtown. I don't know if it's as well. I haven't but, been there yet. How is it? Oh, it's wonderful. Uh, but they had, they, and that's not a really part of a Korean, but it's, it's, they have a lot of Asian products that aren't necessarily Korean. And they had them there for $1.75. Uh, any Mexican market of any size that has, uh, what's the word? Oh, no, what's the word for a Mexican market? Uh, of course, I can't, uh, I can't think of it right now. But anyway, uh, they have them in there because they, uh, you want to keep it in your kitchen, man. If you get burned, or cut and you get that aloe vera on there and we're on your way to healing Mm. you're not going to have a sore finger for the next you know month while it gets infected and every time you bump it you know your arm shakes or something Mm. so uh yeah in mexican homes it's not uncommon to have them a plant in the kitchen Mm. just for that purpose and uh, yeah they do well indoors you want to get them near a window you know and during the summer then put them out on the deck and let them get, but, but you can put them in the house, you know, have, have them on your deck so that if you need, you know, there's emergency, you know, your dog or something or yourself, you know, get cut or hurt or a sting, uh, uh an animal, uh, a they grow or... super well. Yeah. And, uh, aloe oh, yeah. plants, I mean, you, they grow so well that they can become like a whole gift thing, you know, because like that plant that I yeah. have, I've, I've put, uh, they pop basically like aloe yes. plants are so good with this kind of rooting. That's just their whole, their whole spiel basically because they root really well and they basically like sustain the plants among like, it's like one big old clone basically that pops off, you know, new, uh, uh plants basically. I, it, do they ever actually flower? Cause I haven't seen mine flower. I presume that they probably flower. In well, it, come, it comes down to cultivar. There's, uh, I might be wrong on this, but I believe that there's 155, something like that around the world. But here's the most important part of it is that it, as things turn out, it doesn't matter which one you use and for, for this purpose. There may be different in terms of the decor, you know, in your garden. Because there's some really oddball ones that, mm. uh, but for the actual gel, which is what we want, it doesn't matter. So, uh, yeah, some of the ones in Hawaii are so big they they actually fall over on their side and they grow uh, parallel with the ground. And the flower heads get so big they're they're taller than you or I. I've seen pictures of people standing in front of them, and the top of that flower head is like four or five feet above their head. And the leaves are like, you know, thick like a a pillow, man. Unreal. So, yeah, if you you know if you have an area where you don't get cold, like Southern California, say Laguna Beach on the side of the hill, Mm. just water it, or you know, it's not a drought situation like it has been. Yeah, they get monster. Believe it or not, people always think that they're like a drought plant. They think they're like a desert plant, but they're not actually. They prefer kind of somewhat moisture soil. Right. They're a lily. 
that's why the company, the biggest company in America, um, and they, 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 uh, I don't know if they own the fields, they just uh, take the material, but it's down in the Rio Grande Valley. That's the epicenter of uh, aloe vera production in the United States. And uh, anyway, the name of the company is, or their product line is the Lily of the Desert. And that's how they come up with the Lily because they are a Lily. So that's why the name of the Lily of the Desert. And they have organic, you know, in gallon bottles for not much money. So for organic growers, you know, you can keep it in the refrigerator and you have a glass yourself once in a while, but you can use that and not have to dick around with getting the leaves uh, and going through that. I mean, look, it's going to be better. Don't get me wrong. Anything that you can get fresh off the vine is going to be more and more of an impact, but it's the next one down. How's that? You know, so we can buy that by the gallon for, I think it's like 15, $16. And that's a lot of, uh, cause you don't mix a lot. Uh, it's not a high dose, uh, Situation. What do you think is better, Coot? Do you think uh, bottled or fresh is better? All things fresh, always, always, always fresh. Because there's too many compounds. I don't care if it's in a bottle; it was processed, meaning it was heated, and to kill pathogens. And right there, you're going to deconstruct compounds and deconstruct uh, these very fragile hydrocarbons. You know the terpenes, terpenoids, and so yeah, it's uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, so, with a, you know, if you don't have heat, it's like, okay, here's the difference. What do you think is more helpful, eating an apple or drinking some apple juice? So it comes down to that. Unfortunately, there's a whole industry about telling people that's actually like a whole problem these days. A lot of people think that juice is healthy, and it turns yeah, out that juice is extremely unhealthy, whereas fruits yeah, are as much sugar, healthy. As much sugar as Coke. Mm, I, think I mean, actually. when you start reading, yeah, you start reading the label. Was it okay? Here was one the other day. Uh, I, I can't eat them anymore, but I used to like scones, and we made them with the uh, craisins, the, the cranberry raisins. Okay, so a serving, you ready for this? Is twenty-eight grams, so an ounce. Fair enough. The sugar level was 26 grams out of 28 hmm. and 24 of those 26 were sugar added. Now, here's the thing. Very few people, they'd eat like a, a raw dried cranberry one time and that'd be the end of it. You know, it's too tang or too sour, you know, whatever. So they have to doctor it up with equal amounts of sugar. Is that actually, I mean, it blows my mind. I'm annoyed every time I try to buy dried fruit and it's like half sugar. Yeah, it all, yeah. Well, I tell you, man, I dropped a uh, major, uh, you know, diabetics are measured in A1C, uh, which goes back 90 days. And they follow your uh, blood sugars. Like they don't give a shit about what you got this morning, you know. The A1C is 90 days, and then that that's the, you know, do or die. Um, but, yeah, I've dropped almost uh, three points, which is, like, unreal, without insulin. So, and that just by not eating sugar anymore. 
No coffee. I mean, I drink coffee without sugar. Can you imagine that? First time in my life. Uh, I can't, I don't eat any breads, anything that's white. Rice, bread, sugar. Uh, I don't buy anything with sugar added to it. Yeah, so... Yeah, it's amazing. There was actually you're... something uh, just today. I, I just saw something today. The last few days, there's been a bunch of new stories about Alzheimer's. Uh, they've been calling it uh, effectively diabetes type three, and I guess there's yep. new new information for that. Essentially, lifetimes of uh, excessive sugar consumption. Speaking yep. of polysaccharides and stuff, it was complex sugars, I guess. Yep. Uh, unfortunately, alcohol was contributing to it, but also yep. in, in large part, sugar apparently contributes to uh, Alzheimer's. Fascinating, right? It's yeah, it's. Uh... I don't think most people appreciate how addictive sugar is. And, you know, like, okay, one of the big problems for just, well, diabetics especially, but is high fructose corn syrup. And so there's a website you can go to and look at food items and see which ones do or do not have this, this shit. It's, it's a, you know, an extract something isolated from a corn kernel and um, it's in goddamn saltine crackers. Can you imagine that? Because it's cheaper than sugar. And to add, so instead of granulated sugar made from beets, the Monsanto owns that industry completely. Uh, if you want good sugar, you got to get Hawaiian, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, CNH, you know, the sugar cane stuff. Sounds like a cowboy name, by the way. Tanner Stewart is coming for you. He's going to get you. I wasn't, Are you trying, to, I wasn't trying to cut you off, Coot. I just figured I'd throw this up while you're talking. Have you, have you heard about the one they're doing with the fungi from the people behind the fantastic fungi movie? I haven't, no. It's a weekend. Of, it's three days. Uh, go to Fantastic Fungi and there'll be links. Um, I got their kit when you get like all these videos and P PDFs. But then the, the roster of speakers will blow your mind. Uh, you know, from Dr. Uh, Andrew Weil to all the heavies in the micro world and then some. I mean, some really international, not, you know. Nobody trying to make a buck off doing uh, what's that one uh, concentrate the, the blue dragon. Is that it? Yeah. They make an extract, uh, uh, psilocybin it, it's blue. So it's called blue dragon or something. It's like uh Terps or something or not Terps, but dabs. Yeah, we have the, I'm just showing the, the speaker list so far for the, the upcoming conference, if anyone's wondering. Uh, you check that out on in November. Yeah, this guy looks familiar. He's a, a Dr. Wilson Leonard. He's written most of the commercial aquaponic cannabis books. He's oh, never mind. Like the, the main professor out of Australia that did uh, aquaponic research there at, uh, I forget which university. Um, Wendy Kornberg, she's super awesome. Victor Lavanov is a Swedish microbiologist, uh, does a lot of research on aquatic mineralizing, plant mineralizing microbes. 
Thumb Genetics out of Michigan, uh, Sweetwater Aquaponics out of South Africa, uh, Murray Hollum is uh, another big name out of Australia, uh, Kevin McKernan, uh, genomicist. Uh, he was on the show last with uh, episode 247. Uh, you can check that out. Um, uh, Dutch Blooms, uh, always fun to have on. Uh, Dr. Robert Faust, who's uh, I know you're a big fan of. Oh, uh, yeah. Too. Yeah, he's, uh, you know, he graduated 54 years ago from, uh, with a P, he was, got his PhD 54 years ago. And in the early 70s, he and Dr. Uh, Sen, S-E-N-N, the famous uh, marine biologist from uh, Clemson University in South Carolina, he's a big seaweed. Uh, he's the one that, that did all the original work on uh, maxi crop, the first powder in the 50s. Anyway, by the 70s, he and Dr. Faust, and Dr. Faust was just out of college for a couple three years maybe right they were extracting humic and fulvic acid from uh seaweed you imagine that and you know how few people even knew what fulvic or humic acid was in 1972 i mean come on so um they were real pioneers um this man knows more about humic and fulvic acid than anybody else you can talk to he's uh He's nothing short of a genius. That's why we're bringing him on. He had yeah. a great talk too. Check out. He's been on the show twice. You can check out both of those episodes. Uh, I believe both of them were before episode 100 or 150. So uh, yeah, he was on. He was on with Peter of uh, Future Cannabis Pro Project, and that the guy with the cannabis or the core thing. Uh, you know him. Uh, I'm not in fact, sure. you, yeah, if you, he, you worked with him at one point, or he worked for you, or you worked for him, or who? Come on, huh. Fume, help me out here. Uh, I lost you. Yeah, in fact, you were on the, yeah, something about money, a bad check. No. Not that I can remember. Yeah. Anyway, I guess he's a co-host now over there at Final Cut. So. Anyway. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, okay. check your check your messages. Oh, I'll check that in a second. Um, we also have Dragonfly Earth Medicine. We have Matthew Gates. We have Coot. We have Chris Trump. We have uh, uh, Caleb from uh, Copy Left Cannabis. Um, I have a, a cool talk on, on patenting and all that happy horseshit uh, and how people can, uh, you know, there's, there's ways that might be able to, to help people. Um, and then um, uh, Aquilitas, who's uh, one of the big producers out of um, uh, Eastern Oak, uh, Canada. So uh, we have, uh, and Tanner Stewart from Stewart Life, we talked about earlier, also from Canada. So it'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. 
No, never did business with him, but. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I wasn't. Uh, anyway, I, I didn't know what was going on. And I got a call from him, not him, but Peter one day. And next thing I know is I'm on a show with this guy that, uh, you know, ripped uh, my wife and I off for 3,500 bucks. So he could start his anal lube company. Uh, Mountain Organics or something. So uh, anyway, this uh, guy was on there and he starts talking. He starts talking shit about Spagnum P. Moss and yeah. So I did my usual. Oh really? Did you want to talk about the child labor involved in the core business, asshole? You know? Uh, no, 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 no. They, yeah, they shut up immediately. They get off there. I'm going to save What's the, the chances worldwide, Coot, honestly? So you know all about sourcing and everything else. And everybody here has a story about how their particular brand, we don't even have to be oh, specific about brands, their brand, they swear to Jesus, yeah, is picked lovingly by monks. The last um, 10 virgins. For 15 and, yeah. generations. Yeah, they're yeah. masters of their craft. They do it out of passion. They're choir experts. Realistically, I think that the the growing industry is bottom on the list of the entire core industry that uh, serves the hanging baskets they sell at big box stores, Target, all the random yeah. shit they basically go to, whatever. I can't even think of all the random crap they basically put it into. And then at the very bottom of the list, the stuff that nobody cares about, the stuff that basically has no texture to it anymore. Because remember, the coconut comes in like long fibers, right? So the okay. stuff that basically has no texture anymore, they sweep that shit up off the floor slap it in a bag and say hey shit that's fuck that's great grooming okay no, this is, is that a, not true yeah this is, stuff is washed in seawater and loaded with sodium which oh is yeah oh yeah yeah there's okay fox farm used to have three products well they had more products but i'm talking about soil they had of course their famous or shall we say infamous um fox farm ocean forest okay gag in a bag all right then they had some other crap called Happy Frog. Eh, all right. Okay, then the last one, though, was, was the biggest joke of all was uh, Light Warrior. Okay, so what was Light Warrior? Well, it was big pieces of perlite because as a lot of people know, but not many people in the cannabis trade, perlite, its biggest use is not potting soils. It's used in uh, concrete. It's used for tensile strength. It's used for all kinds of things. And it's used for, you know, for tilt up buildings. And so if you can go to, I'm not joking either. You can go to the Perlite Institute. There's a fucking Perlite Institute. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there's a list of all the producers all around the country. Okay. And that size that they had in this product, it was a standard product, just a standard product. Any perlite company manufacturer made and it would sell to a mixing company you know cement mixing company all right fair enough so they would take this uh material and then they would put it in a mixer now when they mix soil you know you have dust and that dust falls to the bottom of the mixer right it's called fines so they would in those fines they give away or they throw it away or they burn it you know it's trash right so Fox Farm was buying it or getting it for free and they would mix it in. So there are these specks of peat moss in this bag of perlite, right? I'm not joking, guys. And then they'd put in shaking some, I don't know, some crap uh, from micro applications, some 
you know, mycorrhizal mix of some kind with some this or that, you know, label building. That's all it's there for is label building. All right. And they were getting $19 a bag for this shit called Light Warrior. And I swear to God, you could get two yards, a two yard sack for under a hundred bucks from a perlite manufacturer. And you want fines? You want fines? Yeah, go to any mixing house and they'll they'll have it bagged for you. They'll be thankful. Thank you, sir. Come back. So anyway, they, they came up with this mix. You took a bag of Fox Farm Motion Forest. You took a bag of Happy Frog and a bag of this Light War and you mixed them together and it was called the Moonshine Mix. And so I, I got a time out like three days or something over at IC Mag because, and they had this guy, he was a factory rep and he was a poster at IC Mag. And uh, I just said something like, hey, thumb dick, did you guys come back from a big late night party at a Mexican restaurant and you got all liquored up and come up with this shit? Is a you know magical mix and uh, man, Gypsy and Nirvana bounced my ass out, you know, telling me that I need advertisers, not you. So uh, you know, you get a timeout. So that was my that wasn't my last one. All right, actually, it wasn't even my first one. Um, yeah, I'm pissed off. Uh, what was his name? Oh yeah, Sam. Don't Scott, think of yeah. you as a pugilist. They think of you as like a nice soil guy. But uh, yeah, you and Breeder Steve and a few other guys, you like to to mix it up, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was laughing in, in your uh, forum the other day. Somebody said something about an OG from 1913, and I said, Jesus Christ, 1913. Most of the OGs that I knew were retired, you know, but, uh, yeah, I guess it's all perspective, right? He was the first guy to have, you know, cookies in our town or something or, you know, I want to go to a, I want to go to a big, uh, Canacon. Oh, we were just joking about how fun it would be to like, uh, just you around with a camera at BizCon and just watch you just like your reaction to everything would just be great. Yeah, I went to one of those in here in Portland called Indo Expo, I think it was. And they had it out the, you know, really nice venue and all that shit. And everybody had their phone on or their microphone, like they were in a order window at a you know, Big Mac or something, or McDonald's, you know. Would you like shake with that fries here? And um, everybody's barking out bigger, better, faster, you know, microbes and enzymes and just, you know, horse shit after horse shit. It was like, okay, one of my first experiences with a really heavy psychedelic was like, say, 68, I guess. So several years ago. And we ate a whole bunch of uh, mushrooms. Like uh, we had no idea. Just I don't know. This looks like a, a safe amount here. And so we went to a grocery store to get some ice cream. And uh, so you're like punk kids, right? And so we're checking out, and the person doing the checking out said, "You better hurry and get to the car before it melts." 
so that little bit of impetus, like I had in my mind, we were going to see melted cars. And so I went outside in the parking lot and sure enough, there were just these puddles of metal liquid. The cars had melted and she was talking about the ice cream. You know? So uh, I decided right then and there that doing psychedelics and wandering around the public was probably not a the same way to do things, you know what I mean? It's just, everything's setting right? Amusing, though. Very amusing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For I mean, Portland would really probably. be a trip. Yeah. yeah, Hawthorne Boulevard around 28th Street. Yeah, and a summer afternoon would be pretty trippy. Board, boardwalks are pretty right. fun. All yeah, boardwalks are kick-ass. Yeah, go to, go to, like, San Francisco or something, you know, fun. Yeah. Uh, there's some fun ones on the Oregon coast, really tiny towns that like people live here. Jesus. Yeah, my phone's been dead for the last 40 miles. I don't know what they do for communications. What, um, so, what, is there any, uh, you were talking, uh, uh, I did want to mention one other thing we were talking about earlier about buying inputs, especially fruits and stuff like that. You never know what the hell they sprayed that stuff with. They oh yeah, I know. All they yeah. can use all different types of stuff that can get yeah. your plants, uh, yeah. you know, pegged for for disqualification. So be careful if you're purchasing anything like that. That's yeah. why it's always better to to use stuff that you can source from other people you know or grow your own inputs. Yeah, and there's other things. I mean, even um, you know, I I came up with this. 12 years ago, I, I said 10 the other night, I was wrong. It was 12 years ago. I first posted it at IC Meg. And uh, it became known as a Coots Fix It Mix and five gallon bucket of water, a cup of uh, alfalfa meal, and a quarter cup of kelp. And that was it. And let it sit overnight, stir it with a stick every once in a while, because there's a lot of saponins and alfalfa, and you get a big bubbly mess. And uh, next morning, just stir it and then uh, hit your plants. I mean, I've never seen anybody come back and go, man, I really fucked my plants up. All I ever heard was like, God, I can't believe this. You know, it cost me nothing. Yeah, a cup, of, you know, a quarter cup of kelp meal, what does that cost? And a cup of alfalfa meal is like, what, 10 cents? It's 20 cents a pound, so half a cup. I mean, a cup is half a pound. My God, give me a break, you know. If you're talking 10 cents worth of alfalfa and all right, let's go big 50 cents. And it isn't, but let me do my math. So a quarter cup would be four would be a cup and a half. So you're talking a dollar. Yeah, you're still talking like, you know, maybe 12 cents. So you got 25 cents, we'll say in a bucket, a five bucket, uh, gallon uh, bucket of water, tea. Excuse me, I can use the right word, tea. You want to use that word, tea. And have an air bubble, you know, so you can stick a hose in there and bubble it and go, see, it's a tea now. Are we, aren't we doing C, uh, extracts these days? Isn't that the new one? We're not doing teas anymore? I don't know. I haven't kept up with that camp in a while. I've been yeah. focused on other stuff. Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, the... Yeah, that was always the big argument between people like on my side of the camp that said, how can you make a tea out of something you have no control over the input? There's no, there's no, uh, nothing. Compost is a, a, it's like saying turkey, it's like saying casserole or sandwich. It doesn't mean anything. 
And same with vermicompost, it means nothing. You got to know who made it, how it was made, what kind of standards they used. I mean, there's, it's not a one. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. You know, big companies like, uh, is it Black Soil or Black Gold? Black Gold is a company that uh, started out here in Malala, Oregon. And at one point, uh, the big companies, uh, Mar uh, SunGrow, the people behind uh, Sunshine Mix and what have you, they bought them because they wanted a retail product and they had enough of a market share that that's what they did. And, you know, the rest is history. That was several years ago. So they send out, uh, what do they call them? Requests for a proposal, RFPs all the time looking for compost so they can put it in their soil mix because they go through a lot, right? And they don't make their own. They send out RFPs to people that have participated in the past and they send a guy out or a gal, whatever, and they inspect and go, yeah, it looks like compost to me. You know I mean, it's not that, you know what I'm saying? It's nothing, but it is something to put on the label. That's all. It may be good, it may not be good. So there's no consistency, it doesn't have to be. There's nothing, there's no law. Somebody, hey look, think about it. If somebody goes to a, a Home Depot, and they buy a bag of soil, and they buy a plant, okay? And they go home and they do something stupid and the plant dies. They come back and they go, hey, my plant died. What's that Home Depot gonna do? They're gonna give them another plant. They got you back in the store. They weren't making any money in that plant to begin with. So you come back to the store, you're going to buy, you know, $40, $50 worth of shit, right? They didn't have to advertise anywhere. They didn't send you any emails. I mean, here you go, lady, go pick out a plant. I mean, that's, think about it. It's just a way to get you in the store to buy the bags of stuff and the bottles of stuff. That's the way it is. We have one of the oldest nurseries in, in what many would call downtown Portland. At 5050 Southeast uh, Stark, Portland Nursery, five acres. Now, when it was built in 1910, it was way out in the country. And now it's, you know, not so far. But can you imagine that big of an acre in the city? That much acreage? And they, I mean, have plants of all kinds. They're not going to get in a squabble with you over a $3 plant. Here you go, sir. You want a succulent? Here you go. Have a nice day. Get you out the door while you got grabbed a wagon to drag your other stuff that you picked up. Just, I don't know. That's the way it works. We had a, a question earlier um, and we didn't get to it. Um, what are your thoughts on how, the best way that people can increase fungal uh, you know, percentages in their soil. Uh, if they already have a mix that they're using, they're trying to increase the amount of fungal growth. Oh, barley, barley, aloe vera. Uh, all of them are good. I mean, all of them are good fungal foods, especially the barley. You're getting uh, plenty of enzymes, but just in my terms of my uh, microbes, there's over 200 uh, varieties of uh, bacteria. There's another 150 varieties of fungi. I got to send you this copy. It's like I said, it's a, a it was a, she later got her PhD, but if she was a PhD candidate, this was her dissertation and it covered every aspect of 
the microbial uh, study of uh, barley as it relates to uh, brewing and uh, beer making, fermenting. So it would really be an adjunct to what you know about uh, KNF uh, because we're talking about a lot of the same materials. You might find that malting or adding barley malt, I'm just not saying you should, I'm just saying it's, it's worthy of uh, consideration to look at the material to see if that's something that you'd want to do. This is a very thorough book. Uh, a dissertation. I mean, it's real. It's like a real legitimate PhD. Not oh yeah, I went to uh, Oaksterdam U, and I got a degree in uh, you know cloning or something. I had I had someone use that on me this week. On what what's your degree in in cannabis growing? Oh, you were a hard knock degree. Okay, all right. Well, nothing you you say is fucking relevant. Then just shut the fuck up. I know. I'm yeah, not, like there's, I'm, like there's any university. The streets, bro. I'm not saying that they don't provide a service, but don't argue with me that that's some kind of qualification. That's just ridiculous. Yeah, I know. It's it's funny, uh, but yeah, it's actually it's not funny. It's actually really fucking annoying. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll talk soil with anybody, but. I don't want to talk jibber jabber about, you know, you know what I think? I don't care what you think. Tell me what you know. You know, I'm not interested in I believe or gilly golly gee, you know. We had, a, uh, we had an interesting thing on that topic last week with, with Matthew Gates and Bricks about how Bricks doesn't make insects magically immune to, or plants magically immune to stuff. It's just, you know. It definitely helps with resistance, but there's a lot of ridiculous information being put out lately. About oh, I know. It's if just, it's if just... you have any pests at all, your plants aren't healthy. Really? No, it just means you have a, pests in your area. Like, that's ridiculous. I, uh, one of Jeremy Silva's associates has several years experience growing mushrooms. And um, he's the go-to guy at the uh, Build a Soil. Kevin is his name. Anyway, he's the go-to guy if you have a question about you know, the materials they sell for uh, home uh, mycology people. So I uh, bought a, what's interesting is smaller tents like in the cannabis trade are usually two by two and then four foot tall, you know, for like cloning rooms or that kind of thing. But anyway, this one brand AC Infinity, I believe, uh, they're known for their fans and exhaust systems and what have you. Um, they make a tent and it's three by three. So that gives you another, you know, foot on each side. And it's easier to find a three foot stainless steel rack than it is a two foot, you know, kind of thing. So anyway, so I ordered all that and I got the uh, infinity uh, exhaust fan and uh, you get a, a panel it's a LC, LED or whatever you call it. Um, so you can monitor the room by humidity or temperature. So that's pretty cool. And for mushrooms, that's a... So anyway, uh, I got all that coming. So I'm just going to go into... Uh, I'm going to grow primarily the uh, lion's mane and some other uh, interesting varieties of cordyceps. And... Uh, 
you know, just have the weed people have fun. It's uh, every week there's a new, I heard somebody told me, uh, I don't give a shit. I mean, did you hear about the new magic bullet coot? I'm going to make it. Right now. It's uh, purple seashells. Everyone, everyone uh, is talking about it now. You grind them up and uh, your plants go boom, boom. Thousand bucks out the door. How, how about it? That's stupid. I know. Uh, I made it up, but. Oh. I'll tell People you. are always looking uh, for a magic bullet, I find. Uh, right. Yeah. It's, you know, they, you go back to when you wouldn't because you were came from a different culture. Uh, but certainly Steve and I in a previous two or three generations before that, we heard everybody heard a fucking story about Jack and the Beanstalk. Okay. Everybody heard that goddamn allegory. Everybody. And the moral of the story is, among other things, there's no such thing as a magic bean. Okay, so you learn that when you're three or four years old, you would think that by the time you got to be an alleged adult, age, able to vote and buy weapons, right? Uh, 18 or 21 or whatever it is, that you picked up some smarts along the way. And that not every parade that comes down your street is one that you necessarily want to be involved with. I mean, my God, do you know how many wonderful products that I've been exposed to in my short career that were going to be the end all to be all to save cannabis growing as we know it today. Think about it. Just in your time, you've probably seen what 20 products. At least. Oh yeah. And, and how many of them have been pulled for crazy reasons? I mean, does everyone remember the guardian fiasco? There was millions of dollars worth of weed destroyed because of that. Oh, let me tell you, it happened that I was invited to be on Adam Dunn's show. And that was being discussed because it was right here in Oregon where the uh, sample had been turned into. At that time, there were two certification agencies, one for recreational, one for medical. And it was the medical lab, the one that was certifying for the medical uh, cannabis that found that and do you know what was in this shit? The same way that's in the media right now. The worm medicine. I'm a... Uh, Don't say it because they'll get a, a shit. Yeah. We, yeah. I, that one. That one. Can you believe that? Okay, so I'm on this program and I had Adam Dunn laughing his ass off. Because I said, well, I have an opinion. And he says, go ahead, Kirk. I said, if I ran a farm and one of my employees, especially a production manager, went to the goddamn golden, the uh, green Emerald Cup, whatever, and he pulled some stunt by smoking a bong or, or a joint with some asshole in a parking lot and agreed to use his shit without having it tested or certified, I'd have the you know, escorted off the property right at the, as soon as I heard about it. I wouldn't even, if you're that stupid, you make your decisions in a parking lot at an Emerald Cup? Really? What a moron. I mean, just how stupid can you be?
That's that seems rhetorical, Coot, because people can be pretty stupid. I know, but have you seen the drivers these days, for example? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm glad I'm old and retired. There it is. Yeah, it's right here in Portland, Oregon. I know the lab. Excuse me, I know of the lab. That was a big story. Dander fled the country because he disappeared immediately after that shit all went down. Oh, they were they were serious. I mean, they they were talking really serious criminal prosecution in the state. You know what his defense was? This is my this blew my mind. Quote verbatim. I didn't know I had to list everything on the label. Really? You never heard of an MSDS? You know, come on. It's one of the weird things about the the whole organic, even even the organic bottling. You know, like I have to be frank, like you know, people assume that somehow that's different. I honestly assume that a lot of those are the same. Uh, and they fall arguably under the religion of organics. Potent has talked about that uh, lately. I like the way he says it actually, that kind of crystals and whatever the religion of organics right uh they'll tell you stuff like well we can't really tell you all of what's in the bottle because of the state of oregon mean 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 state of oregon is you know bad 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 and we can't tell you but if wink 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 there's better stuff in here and i think to myself like since when has a company See, ever said something like that and it was true this, like this, ever this 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 gets it has straight. secret horsepower this car has secret we can't advertise it on the hood but it's i'm going to give you i'm going to give you the fast and furious history of, of uh, organic certification it all started 19 started 1972 over in a little town in eastern washington called elmsburg at a uh God, it was a big motel chain. Started with an R. They were all over the country. Remot, not Ramadi and something like that. Okay. There was a meeting of people who believed in organic, sustainable agriculture. Talk about a cult. Talk in 1971, 1972. There were representatives from Washington, Oregon, California, Idaho. I think that was it. Oh, British Columbia. They formed a group called TILF. And that kind of, you know, moved forward, sort of. And at some point, not because of disagreements, just because of different geographies, different crops, everybody kind of went their own way. And that's how Oregon TILF was formed. That's how CCOF was formed, uh, California Certified Organic Farmers. That's how Washington TILF was formed whatever the group in Idaho is called or was called, whatever. See what I mean? So they ran along from the late seventies, all the way, all the way to 2001. There was no federal program. The law had been passed in the waning days of the Clinton administration. Um, but it wasn't until the very early days of the Bush administration as the law provided that the USDA NOP National Organic Program or uh, National uh, USDA National Organic Program was formed, and guess who they based the, their laws on? Oregon and Washington. Why? Because we had the highest density of organic farms. We had established 
protocols for inspections and certification, what have you. It takes in Oregon, it takes five years to get your farm certified. You don't get to walk in and go, hey, I quit using ammonium nitrate last week and I'm pissing on my trees. Oh, well, here, sir, we'll give you a certification. You got to go five years of, re, of soil remediation. They come out and check your soil. Now you're certified organic. That's what ODCA, Oregon Till Certified Organic means. I don't know what they do in other states, but that's how it's done here in this state. Okay, so when the US, when the federal government set up the NOP, USDA NOP, and they were gonna be certifying organic at a national level. You've seen that it's around a circle with a green and, and white, and it says USD organic on it, okay? They had to take into account, you had Oregon Tilt, you had certified California organic farmers. You had another group that started in Germany in 1928, Demeter, which was your, that's your biodynamic farms. That's a whole nother thing. Uh, they had their own certification. They have an international certification system. Okay. Um, so it's not that, you know, and then, then you had people like just, well, I, I don't believe in that. I'm going to do my own. I'm going to do my own organic because I'm just all groovy and stuff. I mean, you know, God talked to me in series and we sat down, we did some mushrooms and smoked a couple of doobies. And she gave me like the input to the universe. Look, certified organic means certified organic. They set up Omri to, to get rid of consumer products. If you go and look at Omri to their webpage, that's them talking, not me. It says mission statements. We are not a certification agency. We are a listing agency. Our listings come from the work of uh, Oregon and California organic certifiers. Omri doesn't mean anything. It states right on there. You know what you pay for that certification or for that listing? It states right in there. You're charged by how much you sell. Okay. To put that Omri sticker on your box, which the consumer wants to see, right? Because it's all important. And that means it's good. It may or may not. It doesn't mean it's organic. It means that Omri listed it, period. That's all it means. And so the more you make, the more you pay. And when you're a big company like, uh, oh, I don't know. Uh, Miracle, uh, Miracle Grow's got organic soil now. Oh no, this this soil contains organic and natural products. Natural doesn't have any statutory regulatory meaning. None. You could you could clean out your fingernails and put it in a bottle and shake it around and, and it would be natural and organic. Okay. There's no there's no confusion in in the produce sector about what organic means. But everything gets confused in the cannabis because somebody's going to make a money, a profit at it. There's no, there's no, there's no hedging of this or that. Well, I believe, I think there's very set rules of rules of engagement and they're very, they're very demanding. And that's, that's not what cannabis growers want to do. They want They want an instant answer. You mean I can't just take a bottle and dump it on here and make it organic? No, sir, you can't. See what I'm talking about? So they want to take the word and, and use it for their own marketing purposes They're to merchandise some product line. There's no confusion, none, none whatsoever. Now there isn't the cannabis. It was established back in 1958 international treaties. The kelp meal would be defined as kelp fronds as they're called, they're not called leaves, they're called fronds. 
would be pulled out of the ocean. They're dried off or cleaned with water and then dried in the sun. And then they're milled to a consistent size for whatever application. And some of it's turned into Japanese nori, uh, kombu, the other forms of uh, seaweed that you enjoy, if you're, especially if you cook Japanese foods. Okay, anything that, that was made with a chemical, because remember that was invented in 1951 by uh, Dr. Stoddard, not he wasn't doctor, excuse me, Michael Stoddard, who formed a company called the Maxi Crop, and he had he had a seaweed extract. So in this 1958 convention, it was established that all products that were made from chemicals involving chemicals like seaweed extracts made with potassium or sodium hydroxide. That would be called seaweed extract. Kelp meal was kelp meal. You notice they don't sell it as kelp extract. Okay. So when you see seaweed extract, you immediately know if you've been around the lap a couple of times that it's a mechanical, not mechanical, it's a chemical process to extract it. And if it says kelp meal, it means that it's, it's made from kelp. It's ground up kelp. It's ground to a consistent size. Most of it's for livestock feed supplement. That's how good it is. It's used for show dog. It's used with uh, racehorses. Uh, that's part of their diet. Can you, can you not understand how the industry would hate a product that you could buy for that price and contain all those nutrients, all 83 and the rights with what, 350 compounds, algenic acid, mannitol. You got chelating agents. You've got the full range of elements, you've got vitamins, you have plant hormones, all for $1.20 a pound. No wonder they hate it. I would too. I mean, if you just took kelp and made teas, as it's called, to use that vernacular. Uh, and by the way, when you're done, that sludge that, you know, from the tea you use to make that tea, it only lost about 40% of its uh, goodies. So you can use that to you know, decorate your rose plants outside of your trees or your shrubs, as you call them, you know, it's still got plenty of a bang for the buck. So, you know, why not let your outdoor plants spend or your indoor plants, put it on as a top dressing, all that for a dollar 20 a pound. I'd hate it too. If I was trying to run a grocery store and not a lot of profit uh, trying to compete with something like that, is there? So you get sock puppets that go online and bark, silly shit it gets repeated enough times pretty soon it's uh you know pro well, you haven't heard that kelp will cause your toenails to drop off oh no i didn't i didn't know that i mean there's like like two producers in the world this isn't like somebody hits the lottery and goes you know what i think i'll do i think i'll, I'll invest 200 million dollars and go build a plant in nova scotia and buy trawlers and go out and start harvesting uh, rockweed. Well, they'll say what you want. That would be a perfect front for a Bond villain. You're out in the middle of the, you know, Atlantic. You're really in the transatlantic. So you have perfect geostrategic location for your secret nefarious. Uh, yeah. Uh, awesome organization. Uh, you get to go out there. You have free fish. You know what I mean? So you have for like, a, you could have like a Michelin starred restaurant. You know what I mean? I mean, as every secret villain uh, and their lair, you have a ton of people, man. How are you going to attract them? It's kind of like Google. You have to have like daycare and whatever else. Sushi. Well, think about a plant that okay grows. Uh, let me do. I got to convert from. Uh, okay, grows three hundred feet a year, without a root system. It floats in the water. Uh, we're talking brown kelp. Other types of kelp grow differently. 
grow along the shoreline like red kelp. Um, it accumulates 83 elements in the right balance, and, and it's a plant. So meaning that it's not, it can't absorb it, it can't take it up until it's been chelated, right? Meaning that when we add it to our soils, all those nutrients are bioavailable. It's not like calcium that comes in the form of a goddamn seashell. You know, that's a rock. This is calcium that's in, it's already gone through that whole process. It's keep been chelated. Otherwise, the plant couldn't have taken it. The kelp is a plant. It couldn't have taken it up. So now you see why a $1.20 a pound would really put the fear of God into a grocery store owner. I mean, that kind of that kind of energy that you bring to the discussion. So uh, when we talk about it, you know saving money and, and, and return on investment. I don't see how you beat an investment like that. You pay a dollar twenty and you get that kind of yield off your crop. What are, I don't care if you're growing tomatoes or, you know, your orchard plants, you know, your trees, what have you. It's it's going to benefit it all. You know, I've I've always I've noticed something. I've done this for a couple of decades almost. Is that the better a product is, a material, and not these aren't products; these are materials. The better material is, the more the sock puppets come out. Well, I read this study. It was out of uh, Mozambique, done in 1931. Wow. Really? Yeah, and, so, uh, and, and, and the list of warnings just gets, it gets rich. I mean, it really does. I mean, uh, I, 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 in a sense, like, uh, Many years ago, when I when I got rid of my Instagram account, and when I came back for a few months, I, I remembered why I left the first time. But um, I I mean I heard a term I'd never heard before in all of my time. I never heard the term microbial collapse. That you saw that you got it so biologically alive that it would collapse. And now it's like taking his gospel because well you know he hangs out with this old lady. Yeah I know. I, I know her science too. So uh yeah, I'm okay. I rejected I rejected it 20 years ago. So you, you if I got bored with it like well 15 years ago. If I got bored with it 15 years ago, can you imagine how boring it is hearing it repeated? You know, 15 years later, the same science that was, you know, pretty much like, oh really? If you know how many generations I've watched swear that compost teas were going to take them to the promised land hmm. land of goshen you know if only huh well, we you know this, people... this kind of thing it's it's a little bit like the the i mean i have to be honest it, it reminds me i know people will disagree about this it reminds me of the religion of of uh, organics because you don't really like unless you were a microbiologist or a an actual like a, a freaking a geneticist and whatever like basically someone who's really basically spends all their time with microbes all the time i don't feel like you could really know what your compost tea is i mean maybe you'll have some right. general ratios That's and everything the, else but you know and you're it, missing probably 90 percent of the stuff that you can't even categorize stuff that uh, we all know now that there's or a lot of us know that there's a lot of stuff you can't even culture in the in a petri dish because it just it won't allow itself to be cultured that's 90 percent of the stuff that's in a healthy soil microbiome yeah. so i mean how are you supposed to replicate that in a tea like what well, a lipton lipton where... freaking nematodes i mean come on 
Well, that'll be something like an IMO collection where you're actually directly harvesting a lot of that stuff on from something and then propagating it back out in actual compost. You're using a small amount of compost to make a large amount of compost that method. And that method, I think, can provide a solution to not all, but at least some of those missing microbes that you certainly aren't going to get from teas. I, 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 here's my, for example, let's take the average person, let's sit aside, let's say that compost teas, if done a certain way, caused results that would boggle the mind. It would be science fiction, just for a second, okay? When you say to a, a, a typical person, well, you know, to make good thermo, thermophilic compost, we're not even talking vermicompost yet. All right, we're talking thermophilic. You're looking at a year. From the time you do your lasagna, your carbon nitrogen layering, until you cross the finish line after the mesophilic and you've built up the microbes and you cure the curing process. That's the whole deal with, with the uh, compost is the curing. It isn't the stacking. It isn't the heat. Heat doesn't do all that crap. The, the heat, 140 degrees, you can't even fry an egg at 140. I mean, so what do you think? You're going to take biomass and turn it into compost at 140? That's it's right. You're going to sous vide an egg at like 190. Eggs are surprisingly challenging to uh, sous vide. You'd assume right. maybe you could cook them at 140. But that's, right. but that's my point. Compost, you're only taking up to 140 to kill pathogens. It's that stage between 99 and about 68, 69, the, thermo, or the mesophilic. That's where you the microbe colonies return. And so you start adding microbe food, things into that, that they're going to deconstruct that will encourage their colonies to grow and expand. And that's what I was explaining to, uh, I'm sorry, the other guest uh, from Southern Oregon. Luna. Luna. Uh, you want to turn it. You want to turn that compost so the compost that land on the surface get turned into the center of the pile. And that, so that whole process, we're talking about making artisan compost. You think, you know, the average person's going to pay what that costs to produce? They want some shit that was stacked out behind somebody's barn for a couple of years. Well, I'm sure it's compost now. It's been out there since, you know, whatever. Uh, but I mean, you know, that's so when you talk about, I would agree that in the world of my experience is this, that even people that claim or want, want to do it uh, organic, we'll say, That's part of it. But the other part is, but isn't there a way, doesn't somebody have a bottle that can do this? I mean, as soon as you, as soon as you start saying, well, you know, here, here's some of the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, the protocol, some of the protocols of organic food production. Oh, well, God, that, 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 that seems like a lot of work. I, I got to do what now? By the way, I misspoke. It's 167 Fahrenheit. It's still way higher than I thought it would have been, it would be. They're surprising, surprisingly resistant. You got to break down those proteins. I think that's because so they're you, all protein, pretty much. So if you heat it to like 140 or 150, and it's still not like white, just know. set, but the yellow is the 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 yolk is basically still just. It's not even like uh, the good runny. It's like. Bleh. 
It's like when you crack but the egg, it's like what I enjoyed about Luna was uh, when I told her to look up uh, that if she looked up uh, chitinase salicylic acid pathway, that it, that would open a, a big discussion because that's like uh, investigating white blood cells as it relates to uh, human immune system uh, fighting off well diseases and what have you. And then as soon as she started looking at some of the, uh, the science based on it, it was like, oh my God, you know, so it ties in with uh, other areas that she's worked with. And that's really kind of the cool point is that it's not a question of replacing anybody's science. It's like, here's another component of science and you can incorporate that into, I mean, when I was on with, I think it was your show, Steve, that I was on with Mr. Trump and I didn't ask a question. It's a gentleman that's trying to do a genetic data bank or something. He's been on Fume show quite a bit. Uh, he's based here in Oregon. But he was asking him, and I didn't even know what he meant. Like, what would the Coots mix be is in terms of level one? To, uh, Caleb. You know, huh? Uh, Caleb from Coffee Left Cannabis. Yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, I, so uh, Mr. Trump said he wasn't familiar with my mix, so I just ran it down real quick. And so, like he said, whatever it means, and I don't know uh, in, in your world, but uh, a level two or something. Um, IMO2. Yeah, there you go. Right, 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 right. So, so anyway, um, but I, and I understand, hey, look, I, I understand that most people aren't going to spend two, two and a half years taking cow shit and turn it into vermicompost. I get that. Um, but that doesn't detract from the validity. The, the question becomes, what, what can some people do? Probably isn't me. But what can we do to make, make it profitable for people to set up operations to get rid of animal waste from the dairy, you know, those sectors and turn it into viable uh, soil products and not just bags that have really cool labels you know uh i mean i i used to love to go into grocery stores and look at the pot bags the potting soil of, of the uh, pot uh, soils knowing that they all came out of the same mixer <laughs> same peat moss same you know the same everything the only thing different is the color the uh, colors of the artwork on the on the uh, bags about that and a dog situation um uh I, what uh, oh, sorry i lost my uh train of thought there but it's not my show on my show we just say you're welcome <laughs> um did you uh did you guys have anything else if not maybe we'll uh we'll start to wrap up the show no, it's been a long show I think it was a, a lot of fun having fun you one. back again, yeah. Coot. Right. And uh, also be sure to check out Coot at the, the second annual virtual aquaponic cannabis conference, November 13th and 14th. Um, you can find myself over at apmjclass.com. We have a whole bunch of great info. Um, and uh, Growing the Fishes on your favorite podcast app. Uh, how do people find you there, Fumi? 
Uh, sorry, I was just uh, talking about something in the chat. Probably you were asking me a question that has an easy answer. Find me at uh, Fumador, uh, uh, Fumador and the Flavors on YouTube or uh, Fumador underscore Chibador on uh, Instagram. Uh, let's see here. Uh, there's also a photo contest for next month. Follow me over at uh, Portland Cannabis Tasting Society. And of course, it feels like we're talking about like uh, some Hollywood production or something now. And I'd like to thank and I'd like to thank. Anyway, please go visit Fumidoro.com. That's my website. So please go take a look for genetic preservation kits, uh, photos and more hopefully soon. So Fumidoro.com or also fumesofgold.com. Same website goes to the same place. Cheers. I appreciate uh, coming back. I, uh, I plan on doing a, a long interview um it's going to be up on uh youtube i guess and our instagram maybe both i'm not sure i'm not do i'm not have nothing to do with the the production of the actual video and uh yeah it's going to kind of be my swan song i uh yeah it was it's been a good ride and uh yeah i still want to work with individual growers um uh, mm -hmm. I don't have any interest uh, in the scene, you know, uh, at all. And um, we like having you around. <laughs> well, no, I just meant, you know, I, uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah, there's other things to do. I, I really want to get focused on the, uh, on the mycology. I, you know, uh, I, I got, I got waylaid. Uh, I, couple of years ago, I was on this path of doing the, uh, I, I got involved with Trad Cotter and other people that around uh, some of the former people work for Paul Stamets, like down at my, uh, Myriad Mycology in Ashland. And um, he was an extractor for 15 years. So anyways, it's just studying some of the medicinal value of the, like uh, Maitake and uh, Rishi and the Cordyceps, the lion's mane. I want to grow those uh, and make and learn how to do my own extracts and uh, without blowing, yeah. you know, blowing through a lot of money and what have you. That's a good so, idea. Hey, sorry. Anyway, it's, in theory, it's, Steve, uh, uh, have you said this before that in theory you can actually just press them on a rosin press and squish out the the alkaloids like in liquid? No. Uh, for which one? Uh, Lion's mane. I mean, some of them are going to be hard, like Agaricon oh, yeah, and stuff, but like the softer ones. You're talking about no, I, it's something completely different. That you gotcha. You're, Never mind. If you're talking about mushrooms, usually uh, you it's a two-step product uh, process. First, you extract with alcohol. Gotcha. Never mind. And then you do the uh, another extract with water. Uh, certain because uh, you're working with beta glucans. And some are soluble with the alcohol, other with the water. So by doing both, you get a more uh, a closer to the original uh, profile of the of the uh, fruit itself, the mushroom yeah, itself. When a seventy percent alcohol to thirty percent water, uh, if you do them both simultaneously. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not a I'm not an expert on that at all. So. Oh yeah, I, you know, I might know a thing or two. Yeah, <laughs> we don't talk about it too much on this show, but we're we're finally starting to get some activity here. Legitimate discussion about uh, treating depression. Well, the, a number of uh, health and mental health and physical 
health-related issues uh, with uh, mushrooms, uh, and particularly the psilocybin uh, mushrooms for depression, anxiety, end-of-life uh, issues, fears of people. I mean, when you know that you're going to die, you're terminal, it's a mindset can, your, your mindset can play a great role in how well you, you live your last days. And so the hope is that with, uh, in particular, psilocybin, that we'll be able to help uh, people make that transition easier. Uh, and so they can leave with a sense of uh, decorum for a life well lived. And I think, um, you know, what, what else can we do for, you know, our, our fellow men than that? Um, you know, the escort them to the, to the front of the line, you know, to uh, help them uh, make that transition onto the other side, you know? So uh, I, and I'm really thrilled to hear that discussion being made at the political level and uh, with uh, the, some of the research people at uh, University of Oregon and uh, Portland State and what have you. So um, I think at least Oregon and, and hopefully other states, I don't follow it that closely, but I hope that as a society, we're moving to a more sane approach to uh, some of these important issues. I mean, so that's my read. Nice, but we're also, I think, entering a whole new robber baron age with the whole rocketry and exploration of space and everything else. So on, on some level, it feels like maybe we're pissing in the wind, but no, at least we have mushrooms. A little second renaissance in the new era of adventure again. Kind of interesting. And It'd be nice if it was a new adventure. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Have a good one. Thanks, Coot. Uh, You're welcome, man. Bye-bye. Thanks, Fumi, and uh, Cheers. Uh, we'll be uh, we'll see you guys again um, Saturday. I, well, Saturday on Fumi's show. Why don't you tell everybody what's going on? Uh, Bruise and Buds. I was half thinking about taking a break for a couple of shows, but uh, we'll see. We might be there on Bruise and Buds, and uh, if we are, uh, normally uh, we basically hang. And uh, I like to say we, we come hang, don't show your wang. We have pretty uh, open uh, platform. It's kind of a pub atmosphere, so I like to add uh, or uh, uh, welcome a lot of folks on the show. Uh, you know, as long as they're polite and kind of keep civilized, halfway civilized. I mean, we're all a bunch of stoners, but so we're, we're half civilized. But if you keep keep half civilized, you're, you're welcome on the show. And uh, yeah, we like to talk about, uh, honestly, a lot of stuff. You know, we talk about grow and all that kind of stuff, you know, just random uh, uh, technology. Coot is a fanatic for Apple, so you guys probably didn't even know that, but he loves to kind of come and talk about new Apple products or technology. Whatever. So whatever, you know, we stoners so we babble but uh the focus anyway is basically craft beer craft cannabis stuff like that and then we get high and talk about other stuff so anyway welcome folks and uh i'll throw it up on the screen one last time here you can check me out over at apmjclass.com uh we marty and i the co-host who's normally on the show as well uh as well uh, aside from uh from fumador who now is uh basically a new co-host <laughs> as well. Um, but uh, Marty and I put, put this class together, uh, many, many, many hours in, of, of content, um, over a week's worth of recordings uh, that Marty and I have done, plus farm tours, a whole bunch of cool stuff. Um, definitely check it out. Um, uh, if you're looking for a more formatted, long format uh, a class education style, um, you can find me in your favorite podcast app, uh, Growing With Fishes, or potent ponics. We're on pretty much everything at this point. Uh, and uh, thanks everybody for watching.